Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, May the 11th, 843-661-0937 is our number. I thought about this Friday and yesterday and Monday for that matter. We didn't do a good job wishing everybody Happy Mother's Day. I mean, yeah, we, we could have done better, I guess. We, 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 yeah. we could have done much better. We got consumed with um, racing and Bose noise-suppressing earphones and, yeah. you know, the, the important things of life. And um, and I just think we casually um, and then willfully kind of neglected <laughs> uh, Mother's Day. In fact, I think I may have made a joke about it. Don't schedule Mother's Day on race day. Right. And we won't have any problem about this. Um, I want to sincerely apologize to all the mothers out there that we didn't make a big enough deal. And I was trying to make a big deal. Ref kept steering me in this Bose noise-suppressing uh, earphone direction uh, that he got on sale for $699. <laughs> no, um, how many no. of you own $700 earphones? I don't. Um, I that's don't. the luxury no. of being, you know, <laughs> a career in radio is very prosperous. Oh, and uh, <laughs> I do not. Well, they're on sale for, I think, $299. Anyway. Um, <laughs> One. Okay. $199. Headphones on sale for a buck ninety nine. My dad would come out of the grave and get me. <laughs> <laughs> My dad would come out of the grave and get me if he knew that I'd paid a buck ninety nine. And I would said they're on sale. He said oh, they're a buck ninety nine. I mean, I would, you know, uh, it's pretty. I mean, I come from a a family of business people, and finance was always a part of the talk, no matter what you know. And I'd always say, I'd go somewhere. And, I mean, as, as a young person, I bought something and I saved seventy bucks. He said, but you spent two hundred. You know, it's not what you saved. What did you spend? Right. You spent 200 on a set of noise-suppressing uh, headphones. So so anyway, I want to clear this up. Uh, happy Mother's Day. I know it's belated. I know it's delayed. But I just don't think we did as good a job uh, Friday nor Monday in kind of circling around uh, the moms out there and all they do. I put on Twitter, um, I think Bear Bryant famously said, Bear Bryant did an ad for Ma Bell back in the day, a legendary football coach at Alabama, um, the I, I guess we have the first monopoly I've ever heard of being broken up. I mean, I didn't understand Standard Oil at the time. I didn't understand Ma Bell. You know, they they broke it up, considered it a monopoly in the world of telecommunications. But um, he did a commercial in the 70s maybe for Ma Bell when he said, um, on Mother's Day, he said, call your mama this Mother's Day. I wish I could. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and all of us who have lost our moms uh, – yeah, there's a um, there's a bitter sweetness to that day. But um, for all you moms uh, who are doing three times as much as we men do, <laughs> thank you <laughs> and uh, and happy Mother's Day. I did watch Two Thousand Mules yesterday. Good. Uh, late this yesterday is what I've been waiting for. Late yesterday afternoon, I watched it in its entirety. Um, and well, I didn't disturb you yesterday because I just didn't want to. I didn't want to text you and take your concentration because I was waiting to hear this analysis. And I'm going to wear two hats. Okay. I'm going to wear the hat of um, somebody who, you know, kind of believes fundamentally in what they're proposing as um, as something to be considered. They're not saying this is the fact. They're saying, man, there are a lot of things here we can't explain. I mean, th- th- there are numerous examples and incidents that we just can't make heads or tails of. Um, now, it, you know, th- there are parts of the... Um, the documentary that I wish had been done a little bit differently. Um, I would have rather seen uh, at one portion in the documentary, there are about five radio show hosts. Dr. Gorka here. Uh, he was in the fold. Uh, Larry Elder was there. Um, it was really some of the minor players in the world of radio. Talk, uh, Dennis Prager was there. Uh, no Hannity, no Beck, no Bongino. Uh, obviously no Limbaugh. 
Um, so you would have, uh, to me, second tier radio show hosts, still national radio and syndicated radio show hosts, but second tier. I mean, it doesn't take much to wind those guys up. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's pretty easy Just to get give them, them a little re- well, I mean, relief but, but factor, and there they go. Sure. Well, I didn't think of that. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Wonder if Dinesh D'Souza paid them in relief factor <laughs> to make cameos on his um documentary but i want to we'll get into that in just a second uh first thing on the agenda this morning uh trump is no longer undefeated his endorsements failed in nebraska his endorsement Mm. failed in nebraska and succeeded in west virginia and that was really the one i was paying close attention to i keep thinking about the seventh congressional district of south carolina and i'm trying to find things that i think lead us to a certain assumption or conclusion now in nebraska jim pillen got 33% of the vote. Um, Charles Herbster got 30% of the vote. He had a Trump endorsement. Now, Herbster got accused of groping several women in the last three weeks of the campaign. I have no idea if it's true or not. I didn't keep up with the Nebraska gubernatorial race very much. Um, I do know that Pillen is a, I think he's a cattle farmer or a produce, not, not a, I was going to say a dairy farmer. I think he's a cattle farmer. And he's also on the board of regents at the University of Nebraska. So he's an established, successful businessman. Um, and they love their Cornhuskers. I'm just saying in Nebraska, that would be a bit. When I read that, I read it last night, you know, as I was kind of reviewing. I mean, I didn't know what the numbers were last night. They're in a different time zone and I didn't stay up that late. But when I woke up this morning and I saw that Pillen had 33% of the vote, I did know that he was the guy that was a farmer, a cattle farmer, and a regent at the University of Nebraska. And I just think there's some value there. As much as those Cornhuskers love their football, um, maybe they, you know, when, when the groping allegations came out on um, on Herbster, maybe Pillen was the, the other candidate that they gave serious consideration to. So Trump loses in Nebraska in the gubernatorial race, 33% to 30%. Um, now, I don't think the Trump endorsement hurt at all. I think it was the groping allegations they kind of nastied up that campaign in the last three weeks or so. And Pillen interjected some of his own money into the campaign, and they really went after uh, the Trump-endorsed Herbster on some of these groping allegations. And when we think of Nebraska and Cornhusker football, we think of steroids. No, we think of, um, I'm sorry, we think of um, wholesomeness, <laughs> right? I mean, we think of wholesome and um, the heartland of America. I mean, really and truly, when, when you think of Nebraska, that's kind of what you what you think mm-hmm. of. Um, and I would imagine in the heartland of America, uh, where virtue and wholesome living is celebrated, groping allegations are not taken too kindly. Whether they're true or not, don't have a clue. Um, go to West Virginia. This is the race that I think matters. Re- West Virginia lost a house seat. They had three prior to the 2020 census. Now they have two. They've had a pretty significant decline in population. Um, and there was, uh, so you got two incumbents. You had to merge districts. And you got two incumbents running against one another. Alex Mooney was the Trump-endorsed candidate. Excuse me, Alex Mooney was the, uh, yeah, the Trump-endorsed candidate. And, um, and David McKinley was endorsed by Governor Jim Justice and Democrat Senator Joe Manchin which is kind of weird to me. I mean, Justice is a popular figure in West Virginia, but he's a Democrat turned Republican. So McKinley and Mooney each were incumbents. They merged the districts, and they have a hotly contested, very well-funded congressional race in West Virginia. Mooney gets 54% of the vote. McKinley gets, here we go, you ready? Here's the magic number, 35%. 
Why did Mooney outperform McKinley so significantly? Two things. The Trump endorsement for Mooney and McKinley was um, negative ad, or we call it dinged. They're going to ding you on this, man. They're going to ding you on that. So McKinley was dinged on two things. He voted for the bipartisan infrastructure deal because I think Justice kind of really wanted him to do that. Um, Justice is a pragmatic governor, and bringing home the bacon to West Virginia is probably a big deal in, um, in Justice's world. And I think Jim Justice probably said, vote for this infrastructure package, and I'll have your back. I mean, those, those, these guys know where the census is. I mean, they know if we're losing seats or, or gaining a seat. So West Virginia loses a seat. And I got to believe at some point in time, there was a conversation between McKinley and Justice. I'm speculating here, but that's what we do in talk radio. Justice tells McKinley, uh, McKinley tells Justice, um, Jim, I'm telling you that they're, we're, we're going we're gonna to lose this seat. They're going to merge my district with, um, with Alex. And it's going to be, you know, hotly contested. And if I vote for this infrastructure bill and... I'm, I'm, I'm saving the best for last. He also voted for the creation of the January 6th commission. There mm. you go. That This race was so similar to what we're going to deal with in the 7th Congressional District. Tom Rice voted to impeach Donald Trump. McKinley did not, but he voted to establish the January 6th, here I am with air quotes, early this morning, bipartisan commission that Pelosi said, you can put Republicans on here as long as I get to choose the Republicans. And uh, and we know Liz Cheney and I think Adam Kinzinger are the two Republicans on this committee. So I don't know that I've seen a similar race to seven to the 7th Congressional District as I have in West Virginia. It's a similar sort of demo. Um, I mean, I know the, the 7th Congressional District of Horry County, excuse me, of South Carolina includes Horry County, which is very transient. A lot of Northerners uh, Mike have made their way down to the Grand Strand and the Carolina coast for that matter. So the, it'll be heavily influenced by what I call Giuliani Republicans, not very socially conservative, stay out of my bedroom, but don't spend all the damn money, you know, but be responsible in budgeting and spending and appropriating, but, but abortion and gay rights and all these other sorts of things that have been historically important in the South or not as important along the Grand Strand because of all this, this transient. I mean, all these people that have moved in that didn't grow up at the, at, the, at the Welsh Neck or First Baptist Church of Pamplico. You know, I mean, th- those influences have been minimized down around the Grand Strand. But I look at the Mooney-McKinley election, and it is by far the most similar to what we're going to deal with in about a month from now in the 7th Congressional District. You've got one candidate, Mooney, endorsed by Trump. You've got another candidate, McKinley. Now, it's different here, two incumbents. So nobody was at a disadvantage there. We know the percentage of incumbents who win a re-election. So nobody's at a disadvantage there. Jim Justice, a popular West Virginia governor. Um, Joe Manchin, a popular Democrat senator from West Virginia, both endorsed uh, McKinley, and he gets, here we go, 35% of the vote. That is about the anti-Trump sentiment in Republican primary voters. That's about where we are. Uh, It looks to me like, McKinley got about every anti-Trump or never-Trump Republican. I think there's some Republicans who are not never-Trump, but are anti-Trump. Does that make sense? That um, They're tired of him, but they kind of sort of think his policies were okay. But but it looks to me, and, and I keep at the, at the debate, and this goes through a lot of research I did preparing for the debate, the number's two-thirds. I mean, I don't care what CNN tells you. I don't care what the New York Times says. 
the number of Republicans who identify as America first and give Donald Trump the benefit of the doubt is two in three. That's a lot. I mean, that, that's a huge number. Um, two out of three doesn't seem like much. Four out of six doesn't seem like much. Um, 66,000, you know, to 33,000, that's a big number. I mean, it, it, and that's where you get when that two to one continues to kind of evolve in the election. So, yeah, do, do I see, I mean, Trump lost in Nebraska, so he's not undefeated any longer. A Trump-endorsed candidate running for governor in Nebraska was defeated by a cattle farmer who's on the board at the University of Nebraska, um, and it was close, 33-30. I mean, that's a hotly contested gubernatorial primary, but the one that mattered the, to me the most and the one that I think provides the most analytics and, and forward-looking in Congressional District 7 um, is just, I mean, it, it just it solidifies what I argued yesterday. I actually was, was texting yesterday, late yesterday afternoon, with someone who works for Congressman Rice. And, um, and they think I've been fair. I mean, in all honesty, they think, no, nah, you've been fair. I mean, you've got a job to do, and that's engage your listeners. And, um, and you can't forsake your, you know, uh, credibility, if you have any, on, uh, on, on saying things that candidates want to hear. You, you've got to call it like you see it. And I, I, what I said yesterday was, I just, I think it's real easy to get Rice to 33. I think it's almost impossible to get him to 50. And I feel even more, I'm sure of that, after seeing what happened in West Virginia. Um, and the similarity here, Rev, is um, McKinley voted to create the January 6th commission. And Mooney ran a lot of ads against McKinley saying, this guy's to blame for the January 6th investigation, the witch hunt. I mean, in Republican politics, that's what you call it, a witch hunt. So a step further uh, or a step past the creation of the commission would be the impeachment vote. And I just, for the life of me, I just can't get there. And um, I don't have a dog in that fight. We've not endorsed anybody if it would matter. Um, I think we've been fair and and try to be neutral towards all candidates. Uh, Betty doesn't think so, <laughs> but we, we think we have. And, uh, and once again... I just think when you look at what happened in West Virginia, and I'm going to talk to Kaylee. I'm going to run Robert down today to get his take on this. Um, am I, am I, you know, am I going down the right rabbit hole or not, Robert? And um, and I think, I mean, I, I, I predict he'll tell me, uh, yes, you absolutely are. But this seems to be the most similar contest to what we're going to deal with in the seventh congressional district. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Hey guys. Um, I think we can all agree that our Republicans that we've elected, local, state, county, and federal, have failed us. And here's another thing. When are we going to run out of money to give to Ukrainians? Why about not Republicans say, listen, if we sign a bill giving Ukrainians more money, then you need to open up drilling and natural gas and get us back energy sufficient so we can pay for this war and we can bankrupt Putin. If y'all aren't going to pay for this war that way, then we aren't signing on any more money to you guys. And another thing, the state of South Carolina, why do we have a Republican-controlled state that ain't doing nothing? Can they not look at what's going on in Florida? Why don't we start passing some laws like they're doing in Florida? Why don't? Let me ask you another thing. What's stopping us? And the hell with these people on the coast if they don't like it. What's stopping us from exploring for our own oil and gas off the coast of South Carolina and putting up our own refineries? I mean, damn it, we need, I mean, this is crazy when you're talking about paying $5 a gallon for gas. People can't afford that, kid. 
I'm at the point right now where this is really even hurting us. And we, you know, we do okay. So uh, what, what about cheating in South Carolina? How many Democrat-controlled um, cities and towns do we have in South Carolina? Do they not think that Charleston would cheat? Do they not think Columbia would cheat? Yeah, they may have a Republican mayor, but Columbia's still Democrat. Do they not think that there are other, like Lake City, Pamplico, Florence? Why don't we, what can we do to hold our state elected Republicans accountable? How about pass up like the Sanders did, say we're going to have a course at all of our high schools talking about communism and what it really is. Educate our people, our kids, what really communism is all about and how many people were murdered by communist regimes. Why don't we get South Carolina and really make it red instead of pretend to be red? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I mean, I think DeSantis is putting together the playbook of how to deal with the the issues at hand in modern American political. Po- I mean, in, in modern American politics, I think DeSantis is the blueprint. Um, I think DeSantis has supplanted Trump right now as the most effective leader of what I'd call um, right leaning, uh, in your face politics, and, and I, I do think that's what it's going to take. I mean, I think we're past the point of diplomacy. I mean, I understand the team with the most votes wins. I mean, I get that. The majority carries the day in American politics. We've got filibusters and we've got co-equal branches and we've got all this, um, I don't want to say nonsense, but these realities of the way we conduct ourselves and the way we govern ourselves. But I think uh, Republican voters are beginning to expect more of their elected officials to operate as Ron DeSantis does. I, I predict this. I mean, Trump was the first guy. I went back last night and watched the Trump rod, George Stephanopoulos, George Stephanopoulos interview. And um, I mean, Trump just took him on. I mean, I forgot about how uh, in your face he was and how and just interrupt. I stopped George. George, you know me pretty well. You, you know me pretty well. And it was just so matter of fact and so um, respectfully aggressive. Now, at times he was disrespectfully aggressive. And I think DeSantis has polished that up a bit. I think he shined that up a bit, and I think that's the way we operate going forward. Now, you're not going to turn Henry McMaster into Ron DeSantis. I mean, Henry's, uh, you know, a creature of days gone by. I like Governor McMaster, but to expect McMaster to kind of do exactly what DeSantis is doing, I think it's just unrealistic. Now, I will say this. I am very interested in what J.D. Vance, what what is his demeanor when he gets to Washington? we got to get him across the the finish line first, and that's a prime, excuse me, a general in, uh, in November. I think he wins because I don't think Ohio is uh, embracing. I mean, if anybody, if any Democrat-leaning state appears to be trending Republican, and this includes Florida, it's Ohio. I mean, Trump wins it by eight percentage points, and today the Democrats are more liberal than they've ever been. Plus, they've got the headwinds of inflation and gas and, and, you know, the cost of living and all these other sorts of things. You know, I was thinking about it this morning, and I'm jumping around, but we'll get, I want to get to 2,000 mules here in a second. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about it this morning. Um, Jimmy Carter was incompetent, but nobody believed he was a self-dealing crook. I mean, no, no, I mean, they talked about, you know, the era of malaise and the, uh, the American malaise. I mean, he was an incompetent. I don't know if he ever got the job. I mean, Jimmy Carter was a nuclear physicist. I mean, he's a smart man. Um, he was a decent man, but he appeared to just never understand or grasp, uh, you know, the job. And, and out of that came, uh, a legacy of incompetence, uh, nice man. But just, you know, a little bit over his head. Biden is completely and totally over his head, and he's not a good soul. I'm sorry. I mean, he's not. 
the, the more we read and the more we explore, and if the media weren't deciding to propagandize and run interference, somebody's running a crime family based on American politics. I mean, they've self-dealed uh, since the time he got to Washington. I mean, they, they built a fortune. I mean, the family's uh, very wealthy today. I mean, how in the world can Hunter Biden be wealthy if it weren't for American politics? So, so when I look at Carter, and I hear the contrast and comparisons, you know, Biden is Carter 2.0. No, no. Biden is, um, Biden is equally as incompetent and unable to grasp uh, the significance of the job. But Joe Biden's a crook. I mean, he's a self-dealing, selfish, um, just a, a, a typical politician in America today. And, um, and so, so I do. You know, I'm not saying that, that the Biden administration is worse than the Carter administration. I think that's yet to be seen. He's damn sure working on it <laughs> as we speak with gas at 437. Uh, we came on the gear yesterday and said gas is at an all-time high. The highest national average ever, uh, that was until today, or yesterday, I'm sorry. 437 is the national average. Americans have never paid more for gasoline on average than we have yesterday, and that'll probably go down a little bit for the next week because we've had a little bit of a sell-off with recession. I mean, imagine this. We're excited about gas going down because there are recession alarm bells going off all over the economy. And uh, But but I would, for clarity's sake, Jimmy Carter was an incompetent, decent man. Joe Biden is an incompetent, self-dealing thug who's allowed his family to get wealthy off the government funded by the American taxpayers. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. As you look at these results from yesterday, so West Virginia, you said all along, is basically the most Trumpy state there is. When you look at the statewide approval ratings, West Virginia is number one. Trump's approval ratings in West Virginia with Republican primary voters is about 90%. South Carolina's in the top five or six, uh, but you got areas like Charleston, um, Columbia. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, Trump's approvals are similar to West Virginia in the 7th Congressional District. Uh, I think Trump's approvals, the last numbers I've seen in the 7th District is about 87%. So you're teetering on um, as Trumpy as West Virginia. The state of South Carolina is a little more diverse and, I don't want to say cosmopolitan, but it has become a little different. South Carolina has embraced diversity. And I'm talking about diversity of lifestyle, diversity of population. Uh, the transients that move in uh, to the to the coast have changed. And uh, Charleston, I mean, Charleston, there's a chance a Democrat wins that seat. I mean, Joe Cunningham won it a couple of years ago. I think it'll be up for grabs as to who the better candidate is. And I think when the when the headwinds advantage, or excuse me, when the tailwinds advantage the Republicans and the headwinds are against the Democrats as they are today, it's far more likely that Arrington or Mace win that seat. But it's not unusual for a uh, the Charleston area to elect a Democrat. There are no places like that in West Virginia. I mean, it's, you know, it's red, red, red. We're red. We got Clyburn and, I mean, think of that. If you had seven congressional districts and Clyburn and Joe Cunningham are, I mean, that's, you know, two of seven Democrats. And um, But the seventh congressional district is very similar to West Virginia. And that was the number I looked for this morning. What was McKinley's final tally? But I, mean, I knew when I went to bed last night that Mooney was going to win. And I thought Mooney would win anyway because the Trump endorsement in the, the one state that Trump has the highest approval ratings probably carries more weight. And you've got that, that vote for creating the January 6th commission. So I wasn't, I mean, I, you know, maybe, maybe I was a little bit off here, but I never thought McKinley was going to win. 
And I think Jim Justice probably made a deal about the infrastructure bill, and I think Manchin probably just, you know, paid a friend some some political respect. But but I wanted to see the number. And if I'd wrote a number in my hand last night when I went to bed, um, what is my prediction of the percentage of votes McKinley gets? It would have been 35. It's about one in three. I mean, that seems to be consistent across the board. Um, if you're running against a Trump-endorsed candidate, you're going to get somewhere around 33, 34 35% of the vote. And now in J.D. Vance's case, it's different because in Ohio, you had four well-funded candidates, but 80% of the votes cast in Ohio were cast by candidates who identified as America first. Let me say that again. In Ohio, 80% of the Republican primary votes cast were cast for candidates who identified as America first. That's a big number. Let's see what happens in Pennsylvania. This coming Tuesday, because um, uh, Barnett, the African-American female, who says she is a MAGA on steroids. I mean, she has and said, said that. she's surging. Oh, she's surging like crazy. Uh, has spent a, a pittance in compared to what McCormick and Dr. Oz have spent. But I think, I think people want to vote for Dr. Oz. But when they find out things like he may or may not have voted in the Turkey election, the Turkish election, um, he's a Muslim I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this is bad or good. I'm just saying that they're, they're you know, Republican primary voters are a little bit suspicious of somebody who may have voted in the Turkish election and are, a, you know, a Muslim. I mean, you know, there, there's some things, some revelations are happening, but, but here's what's happening. So as Oz begins to lose support or some of the undecided start breaking, they're, they're, they're questioning whether or not Oz is their guy, but they're not going to McCormick. McCormick's numbers haven't moved. He's an establishment sweater vest wearing, former Goldman Sachs, uh, went to West Point, uh, got a doctorate from Princeton, uh, worked in the Bush administration. In fact, his wife worked in the Bush administration. So he's the typical, I mean, he's the quintessential check-in-the-box candidate. But when people are questioning whether or not Oz is the right guy, they're not leaving Oz going to McCormick. They're leaving Oz going to Barnett, and that's why she is surging in the polls. In fact, I think in the latest poll, she is one point ahead of McCormick and one point behind Dr. Oz. So it's a three-way. I can't believe Dr. Oz. <laughs> this sounds funny coming out of my mouth. Anyway, let's go to and, the And ball. sometimes you just refer to him as Oz, yeah, which is well, funny to me. Yeah, I'm not on a first-name basis as you are. Uh, 843-661-0937 or 1-866-TELL-KEN. Let's go to the phone. Here is Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Oh, it's a great broadcast as always. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm rooting for uh, Miss Barnett. I hope she uh, does well in Pennsylvania. But it wouldn't bother me if Dr. Oz won at all. But Would it bother you if McCormick uh, I, won, uh, Mike? Would it bother you if McCormick pulled it out? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because I a, think he's a little too bushy. And that's a win for the establishment. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, that's why I'm, I'm rooting for Miss Barnett. But I think Breeze got uh, hit something that, I mean, it's redundant, but it's there every day we wake up these days. And this inflation is beating everybody to death. And it's I don't see it getting anything but worse. And I think you're absolutely right about Jimmy Carter. In a lot of ways, he was a decent man, and he, cert he certainly wasn't a crook. And I've said from the minute they nominated Biden, I knew he was a crook, and uh, I can't I can't go into it, but uh, he he's absolutely a crook, and he's done nothing but grift off the American people for forty five years. 
And that and uh, I don't know, but I don't know how Democrats get and uh, never Trump Republicans get their head around this, that it's a it's a good thing to have inflation and high gas prices and the border out of control. And that's in a uh, really almost untenable international situation. And. uh and uh, and still want to vote for anti-Trump policies. What in the world are they thinking? What kind of convoluted reasoning do they use to get there? I didn't get to hear the professor yesterday uh, talk too much, but uh, he was. Uh, but he's always uh, got these talking points and everything that he throws out to uh, kind of distract you, say, look at this shiny thing instead of uh, the real problem. But they, what kind of reasoning, I, I cannot get my head around what kind of reasoning that makes people want to support policies that's going to make cost them more money and make their lives more difficult. You know, Mike, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Dr. Kaufman did not defend the Democrats yesterday. That was a bit for the first time. I mean, he's been a little bit critical recently. But yesterday, I mean, the look in his face and kind of the, the, the nodding of his head, I mean, he, he, I can't defend it. I mean, he said, I just think the Democrats are going to get slaughtered. I mean, I think they made uh, a mockery of government. I don't think they've been effective in getting their message out, and their ideas have been even worse. Now, you know, it's interesting when Jen Psaki says a couple of days ago, nobody saw this sort of inflation coming. Nobody <laughs> in my world didn't see it coming. I mean, every, every Joe Blow and Joe Sixpack that I interact with, and I'm talking about fellow business people, and I've, I'm telling you guys, that's kind of my universe, uh, eight or 10 or 12 business uh, owners. That's, you know, that's my core group of, of friendships. Uh, every single one of us knew that if you pump that much liquidity into an economy in that short a time, and you began restricting, you know, so, uh, so some of the distribution and production capacities of our economy, it was inevitable. I mean, there was no other outcome. And Saki still gives this academic version of um of the economy and Jerome Powell and the Fed and what they're tr- soft landing. I mean, it's you know it's catchphrasey and it's soundbitey and it's it's Washington in nature. But but everybody had to see this coming. I mean, most people listening to my voice have some elementary understanding of supply and demand. And when you when you increase the supply of liquidity that quick and by that much. And you tell the you know the distributioner or the distribution network and the production you know you can't be as effective as you have been because we're shutting down plants and we're telling people they can't fly on airplanes and uh, you know we can't go to ball. I mean all these things that add value to the economy that create uh, the largest GDP in the world. I mean we constricted, we restricted most of those activities at the same time we're increasing liquidity. So we're pumping. I mean, that that's going to come out in the wash at some point in time. And here we are. And I'm telling you guys, we're stuck here. I mean, I'd love to tell you in six months from now, it's going to be better. This is going to take probably 36 months to work itself out of the system. And it's going to be some hard times. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced of that. I'm sorry. I don't like to, like to be the bearer of bad news. And I don't have a degree from anywhere. But if I look at some of the realities of where we are, and, and it's going to be rough going. I mean, it just is. Inflation is going to be rampant for about three more years. And uh, as they try to police or curtail inflation, uh, the cost of borrowing money is going to be more expensive. That's just the realities of, of where we are. And, and I think a year ago, I talked about the housing market. 
And it's not that the housing market, the price of the house isn't going to change much. I mean, I think we'll see some receding of that. In other words, the the home on the market today for two ninety that gets multiple offers and the guy sells it for three twenty. I mean, that's euphoric. I mean, that's not realistic. That's supply and demand. And really and truly, it's the um, you know the the sawmills not being able to get to work, produce the lumber, and get the lumber to the Home Depots and Lowe's and and you know lumber businesses around. So we've distorted in in, in such a profound way supply and demand. But here's what's going to happen. That $290,000 house that somebody made an offer for three twenty, dollars they're financing at 2.95%. All of a sudden, that finance rate is going to be 5.5%. So the price of the house actually went up because we live in a how-much-does-it-cost-a-month economy. I mean, that 90% of Americans, probably 95% of Americans, they're not as concerned about what the car costs as they are what the payment's going to be. How much a month. That they're not yeah. as concerned about the, the price of the house as they are uh, what they can afford per month in their, in their monthly family budget. So those are stark realities that we're going to have to deal with. So, so do I believe the $290,000 house that is selling today for three thirty and has multiple offers is going to recede? Yes. I mean, I think there'll be a correction there. But the financing of the $290,000 house is going to be more expensive than the financing of the $330,000 house because interest rates are two and a half points higher. I mean, that's where we're headed. I've got a really good friend in finance and banking, and I asked him yesterday, as a matter of fact, you know, what do you predict the interest rate to be 18 months from now? And he said, probably in the neighborhood of six, six and a half percent ish. I mean, that, that's, that's you know, on, on average over the last hundred years, that's fairly normal, but we've not lived in a normal finance environment. And the reason we've lived in this 0% interest rate world is we have so much debt and, and so many gubernatorial uh, government responsibilities. And it's just, I mean, we have a mess on our hands and it's not going away. I mean, there, there is nobody with a magic wand. As much as the Fed has tried to make you believe they have all these uh, capacities and capabilities, when 2008 hit, the Fed had some toolboxes. They had a fairly clean balance sheet. Interest rates were 6 or 6.5%. They could lower rates. Uh, they could become activists and uh, monetize the economy, inject uh, fluidity in the economy uh, with fiat currency. But it's still, I mean, it, it, the balance sheet of the Fed now is multiple trillions of dollars. The interest rates, I mean, they're trying to ramp them up a little bit now to curtail it. I mean, there is no good answer here. I'm sorry. I'm not an economist. Uh, there are some economists that agree that disagree with me. But I think what we're hearing is Washington speak, soft landing and curtail inflation. Everybody should have seen this coming. Well, it's here. Everybody got a check. Nobody had to go to work. You know, businesses got money to pay. I mean, it's the, the absurdity of what we did. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The COVID, the, the, the American government's response to COVID is one of the most epic failures in our country's history. The media won't tell you that, but, but I'll say it again. The, the response of the American government to COVID was one of the greatest and most epic failures in the history of this nation, and we're going to deal with the consequences. Back in a minute macroeconomic stimulus and i'll talk like an economist here for a second i can fake it for a for a sentence or two macroeconomic stimulus always sets off inflationary pressures and that devalues the dollar i mean it, we can get as complicated and we can talk for hour after hour but when you do these macroeconomic stimulus plans as the government did during covid it's going to set off inflationary pressures and inflationary pressures are going to devalue the dollar and you're poorer today whether you know it or not let's go to the phone larry in the pd hi larry so 
totally agree with that statement. Um, but I think in, in the interest of fairness, I want to say that the Fed wanted to raise interest rates a while back, and two of the three stimuli were enacted and signed by President Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like some of this has to lay at his feet. And, and you know I'm a big fan of Trump, and, and, I, and I'd vote for him again. But I don't think we can be honest with ourselves if uh, if we don't admit that some of this could have possibly been staved off. Jerome Powell tried three times during Trump's presidency to raise interest rates, and Trump got on the air, got on the news, got on TV, called him out and said, you can't do that. You're just doing that because, you know, you don't like Republicans and you don't like me and it's going to hurt my presidency. And, and Powell caved to the political pressure. Um, but now, you know, obviously you can't say that Powell was interested in helping the Democrats because he's had to raise rates a couple times already and plan to do more this year while the Democrats are in power. So uh, I feel like we have to be a little bit uh, intellectually honest with ourselves and say that some of this was, was foreseeable, and it was foreseeable when Trump did it too. Very fair. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And that is intellectual honesty on full display. And I said early in covid Trump blinked. Remember the day we talked about stimulus and shutting down and lockdowns and and I got criticized. I mean, hyper criticized for saying Trump blinked. That was almost like our audience saying your guy blinked. Your your guy should have thought through this a little bit more. So yes, I mean all of this doesn't lie the blame. The, uh, the blame doesn't lie the feet of Democrats. Republicans were very guilty of macroeconomic stimulus that led to once again these inflationary pressures that have made everybody listening to my voice a little bit poorer than you were a couple of years ago. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here is Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. I got a couple of things on my mind, several, but I'm going to share three of them with you. First of all, um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I look at things and say, well, that just doesn't look right to me, or that doesn't sound right to me. And uh, if you want to call that conspiracy uh, theory, then fine. Uh, all of those keep coming true. So maybe they, maybe they are. I've got to get some new conspiracy theories. There is no way in hell the United States government, the Department of Homeland Security, Secret Service, would allow the First Lady of the United States, the Speaker of the House, to visit the capital of a country that is under attack and at war. There's no way in hell that would ever happen. Guys, we are being sold a bill of goods over there, and I don't know how or what's happening, but what we're seeing on the media in Ukraine is BS. Hmm. That's Thought number one. Thought number two, there's a scene near the end of The Wizard of Oz that reminds me of Jimmy Carter. The wizard is giving out his things to the tin man and and the heart to the scare to the uh, tin man and the and the brain to the uh, scarecrow and the courage to the lion. But he doesn't have anything for Dorothy, and she says, you are a very bad man. He says, no, Dorothy, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. 
and that's kind of my thinking regarding Jimmy Carter. Even though I supported him and voted for him, the last candidate for about anything outside of Darlington County had a D after his name that I ever voted for. But anyway. Uh, the third thing, I've Charles. Shared, I've shared my... I'm sorry? Was there a third thing? Well, I got... Well, third thing, let me just throw this out there. Okay. If you know anybody in Ohio, or you got a few thousand dollars laying around and you want to share it, this guy Tim Ryan is a is a young guy, and he come he tells everybody he's a moderate, and uh, he he tries to be conservative in some ways, but he votes with Nancy Pelosi 100.0 percent of the time, and even though we're in South Carolina, we've got to do everything we can to keep him from winning that election in November for the U.S. Senate. Well explained. Charles, I'm going to go back to the first, if you don't mind. I want, I want to hold you for just a second. So so, sure. the, so sure. you're, you're arguing, or, or you're insinuating that Jill, that Jill Biden didn't go to Ukraine? I'm not saying she didn't go. I'm saying if she went, the circumstances in Ukraine are not as they're being portrayed in the media. Okay, gotcha. Just want to clear that up. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. Um, that's kind of interesting because uh, if you're arguing, in other words, did someone land on the moon or not? <laughs> you know, um, there's a country song. The world must be flat because people leave town. They never come back. Uh, you, you know, some of these uh, I'll tell you guys, some of this is not conspiracy theory. I mean, we've got to stop uh, marginalizing ourselves by I mean, it's almost like we try to ah, we have these thoughts and premonitions but we're a little bit hesitant to pronounce them for fear of being labeled fringe or out of the mainstream or a little bit odd or bizarre. And I mean, I get it. We all have a certain, whether, whether we consciously do this or not, we all are in self-preservation mode 99% of the time, whether it's financially, whether it's, um, you know, just, um, your reputation, um, you know, are you held in high regard or not? Do you care what people think of you or not? I know a lot of us say we don't care what other people think of me. And to some degree, that's true. And it can be true. But but all of us have to account for how we're perceived amongst our peers and our cohorts and our co-workers. And, and I know a lot of people that, that hold a, a strong-held opinion that's out of the mainstream, and but they won't let it be known until they kind of sort of let their guard down. Um, I've done this informally to a lot of my friends. Um, I've talked about the 2020 election and the majority of my friends, once again, a Republican, um, they're not neocons. They're not raging, uh, you know, guarding the right field foul pole. They don't go to, uh, monthly meetings with the Republican party. Uh, very few contribute, uh, probably half and half make contributions to Republican candidates. They're, they're business guys and business ladies, and they see the world through the lens and the eyes of a business of a business person. Everything they um, encounter in life, they, they kind of encounter as if it were a business deal, a business proposition. My wife has chastised me. Um, she says, You're, our three kids aren't investments. You know, I'm always talking about, we got to do this and everything. I, but I mean, that's the world I grew up in. That's a, I was kind of trained to see the world um, through that lens. But, but when I start down the road of the 2020 election, and I can kind of go there casually, in other words, I'll say, does it make any sense to you that more African-Americans voted for Joe Biden in the middle of a pandemic than voted for Barack Obama, a transformational, whether you like him or not, a transformational political figure. And my friends will always say, of course it doesn't. We know something happened. 
We know the numbers doesn't work. The math doesn't add up. I mean, of course, something happened. Um, But they don't want to be the ones to initiate because they're all of a sudden the conspiracy theorists. Now, I host a radio show, a conservative radio show, so they kind of expect me to provoke uh, those sorts of sensations. Their kin goes again. Their kin goes again. You're right. But but I'll I'll assure you with this, and I've got a famous saying in my circle of influence about the government. I mean, I despise the government. I'm sorry. I despise our government. I think it's wicked. I think it's crooked. I think it's derelict in its responsibilities. I think they're leading our country into the financial and cultural abyss. And and I think, you know, the American people better wake up to that reality, that stark reality um, of what our government is doing to our nation. Our nation is not doing that to our government. I mean, our nation is complicit in many ways, but the government's driving the train in a direction that I think is unbelievably dangerous to this country's prosperity existence. In other words, if my grandkids are going to grow up in a better America that I had an opportunity to grow up in, we've got to make some fundamental changes. You asked something interesting a second ago. When I said I thought we were in for two or three years worth of recessionary sorts of and and inflationary, really, I don't know about the recession or not because we've got such a monetary, uh, such an amount of liquidity out there, um, but inflationary pressures are going to make everything um, harder. No question about it. And, um, and you said, well, what's the answer? I mean, that's not your exact words, but in essence, you were, you know, what's yeah. the answer? It's a little bit like Ozark, the Netflix miniseries that really took off and created a kind of a culture of its own. Once you agree to launder money for a Mexican drug cartel, there, there's no undoing that. I mean, you're in it for life. You, you probably at some point in time die with a bullet in your head. I mean, that's just, you made that deal. And you thought it was short term. There, there's no way in this world that you're half married to a drug cartel. When you agree to be their accountant, when you agree to be their their cleaner, I mean, you know how to clean money. I mean, that's laundering and, uh, you know, there's just a lot of sophistication involved in that. But once you decide to do that, Reb, there's no turning around. You don't go to the drug lord and say, I want to resign. You know, I don't want to be a part of this cartel any longer. Once you marry yourself, to fiat currency and zero percent interest rates for as long as we did, I don't know how you turn around. I mean, I really don't. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to turn around once you make that deal with a drug cartel. I think you're in it for life. Enjoy the benefit. I mean, if they're paying you a lot of money to clean money and embezzle and, and launder, then just enjoy that. But no, one day, you'll probably crank your car up and it blows up or one of your kids gets shot in the head. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a ruthless group of people. Well, I think we made a decision similar to that. When, when we made a decision to pump that much liquidity into the economy, and I'm talking about really from 2008. I mean, I'm not talking about recently. It's not all about COVID. And I think Larry's spot on. And I think if we're intellectually honest with ourselves, we'll admit that Trump was a big part of this. I mean, Trump was kind of the, I mean, he professed to be the king of debt. So, so if he's borrowing money, I mean, Trump will borrow money when he does have to co-sign. You know, or he does have to be the guarantor. I mean, imagine how easy it would be for somebody like him to borrow money if he doesn't have to be the guarantor. Um, th- there's no promissory note out there. This is um, secured by the full faith and credit of the federal government. That's you and I. That's all of us taxpayers. And, and I do, I mean, I remember the moment in time when I said Trump blinked. You did. I mean, I, I said he blinked. I mean, it, we went for this shutdown and lockdown and uh, I think we all got a little bit freaked out, and I think if we'd slowed down, take a couple of, of deep breaths, we would have realized that if we're going to print this much money out of thin air and we're going to constrict uh, distribution and production in the fashion that we are, what in the hell are we going to do 
in three or four years or two or three years when inflation is as rampant as it's ever been in our nation's history. So, so to the drug, fa- to, to the, um, what is the family's name? Um, uh, the birds, the birds, the birds on Ozark. I mean, you know, as much as you'd like to get out of the deal you've gotten <laughs> into, um, just keep, keep cleaning the money, keep going on trips, start your foundation. Um, you're in for life. There's no turning around. And I just wonder whether we made that deal with, with fiat currency, with 0% interest rates, that there's just no way to unwind this. I mean, if we're talking about raising rates to 6%, and we believe raising rates to 6%, which is probably below the historical average of the last 100 years uh, in American finance, and, and we're concerned that that may lead us into a, a depression, you know, a, a, a deep recession, maybe even a depression, then we've got the fundamentals so out of sorts that you wonder whether there's a chance to return to any sense of normalcy or not. Now, this is speculation. I don't have the answer to these questions. Larry Summers doesn't have the answer. Um, Alan Greenspan doesn't know. Charles Powell, excuse me, um, Chairman Powell, Jerome Powell, he doesn't know what what the answers are. Um, We're all making guesstimates, and I mean, their decisions, I would imagine, are more informed than mine, but I don't think you've got to completely and totally understand macroeconomics, nor stimulus, nor inflationary pressures, uh, to, to understand that when you inject that much liquidity into an economy in that brief a period of time, you distort supply and demand. Not only did we, and I know I'm being redundant here, but not only, stick with me, not only did we say, hey, let's, let's create all this money and get it in consumers' hands, get it in government's hands. That's probably the biggest mistake we made. Um, I would love to know what the deposits of the public sector are right now as compared to what they've historically been. I would love to know that. I mean, governments keep money in banks. Local government keeps money in local banks. School district keeps money in local banks. I'd love to know what the deposits are of school districts, of county governments, of city governments, of state governments, of, of higher education institutions. If somebody could track that, and for, I mean, that, that would be an entailed process. But I would love to know how much more flush the government agencies are today than they've ever been. I mean, think about here in Florence. I'm not, I'm not chastising anybody, but we built football stadiums in the middle of a pandemic when schools weren't open. I mean, we weren't, you know, formally educating kids. We're virtually learning and a lot of other creative things we were doing. Social distance was the, the rage and mask and, and vaccines and all these other sorts of things were, were being bandied about and talked about. But I mean, in the middle of a pandemic, we built football stadiums. I mean, everybody else is tightening their belt, but, but nobody really tightened their belt. I read yesterday, and I'll read it again. Um, in the CARES Act, which included about $2.2 trillion, small business got less than 20% of all that money. I mean, the small businesses were told to do what? Shut down, and all the big boys were still open. Uh, why were they open? Do you think, I mean, we talked about how much money Amazon was spending lobbying Washington how much money Walmart was spending lobbying Washington. And I think we've got to address, I mean, when I look at America first, I think America first has to have an element of anti-corporate America in it. I mean, that, that's odd for conservatives to say that. That's odd for, you know, the National Review to write about it. But I think J.D. Vance has to go to Washington with some degree of anti-corporate America. I didn't say anti-business. Please understand, I think we've got to decide whether we can segregate or separate uh, the private sector into 
those who have the ability to influence Washington and those who are at the mercy of the influences that, that you know, big business forces or commands upon our government. And and that's kind of when you go to the uh, the PPP plan, 75 percent, 78 percent of all the PPP money went to the largest 13 and a half percent applicants. So when I say the the public sector has declared war on the private sector, I think it would be a little more effective if I said the public sector has declared war on small independent businesses. I mean, I don't know what their motivation is. Is the government in bed with corporate America to try and squelch competition to run the, the small mom and pops out of business to consolidate even further, you know, uh, some of the um, some of the facets of our economy. I don't I don't know that. Or is it just an effect that the corporate interest have the loudest voice in Washington? Well, I mean, they have the deepest pockets. Same thing. I mean, it's, it, you better believe it. I mean, the deepest pockets lead to the loudest voices. And, you know, when, when COVID came along and, and corporate America began lobbying the government, were they lobbying in their best interest? And is their best interest um is, is part of their best interest in, in you know, squelching the competition, you know, cleaning the playing field, pulling up the ladder. Is the old saying I heard in the South Carolina State Senate when a bill would pass, and it was pretty obvious to me what this business was doing, I could call names. I mean, there are two examples I can think clearly of, big business pulling up the ladder and, and you know, trying to create a world of which they have less competition. I mean, that's smart, but it's corrupt, and it's got to be addressed. So I believe that some of this America First agenda has to consist of uh, anti-big business, anti-corporate America. That's Once again, Reb, that's going to be complicated for most of us who grew up believing in the virtues of capitalism. You know, less government is better government. Uh, I don't know that that train hadn't left the station as well, and we're talking, you know, there's not a debate now about big government or small government. It's how intrusive government is going to be. I mean, it, it seems to me that the debate, the debate needs to be fundamentally reshaped 843-661-0937 let's go to the phone joe in hartsville good morning joe yeah good morning guys one of the biggest problems is everybody wants 30 dollars an hour but they want to pay like they're making 10 dollars an hour i mean there's got to be a balance and what it seems like with the democrats it's never their fault for anything going on like Biden yesterday blamed everything on Putin, uh, the pandemic, uh, this scheme tax plan of Rick Scott thought about. Extreme MAGA, I think, came up. Yeah, extreme MAGA, everything, extreme big business, big oil. You know, these same people, when the economy was booming, and the price of gas of $1.87 are now gouging the public. They don't have a clue, and and people don't understand economics. Hell, they quit teaching civics and economics and, you know, changed it all over to social studies. <laughs> That's another one that kills me. But... The, the kids today aren't learning anything. They stay on their phones in the classroom. I talk to a lot of teachers. They can't get the parents to come to a, a parent-teacher conference. They can't get them to come to PTA. But they'll come if you take their phone away from their kid and demand you give it back to them. And then they'll call their kid while they're in class to find out what they're doing this weekend. So... 
parents need, I don't know, it's, we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> we are really in trouble. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. want to say again, I said it earlier, and I want to do it after this break. I watched the movie 2,000 Mules in its entirety yesterday. Um, it really, th- there was no major revelation. I mean, it's, I mean, all of these things we've talked about before, but they really and truly went through um, a process of which is very, very convincing that, you know, what we suspected, they, they kind of put pen to paper. I mean, they, 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 they draw the conclusions or they just, they leave it for the viewer to draw the the final conclusion. They didn't prove anything. They did not prove a single thing. They offered up an enormous amount of, uh, ah, circumstantial evidence that leads you to believe many of our suspicions that something just doesn't make sense. In other words, we've said, or I've said, I can't speak for you guys. I've said over and over and over and over again, there, there are a handful of things that just don't make any sense. I mean, I can't investigate it. I don't have the money nor the, the intellectual know-how to go down the investigative route, but something just doesn't smell right. Something doesn't look right. Something doesn't sound right. Uh, some of the statistical anomalies lead you to believe that something happened that we can't explain they try to get to the bottom of some of these statistical anomalies. And I will elaborate. Uh, Mike, let's take a break now. When we come back, uh, let's kind of go down the road. How many of you have seen uh, 2,000 Mules? I had two people, three, four, five, uh, four or five people text me yesterday saying, you got to watch it, man. I watched it. You got to watch it. They don't prove anything, but they offer up an enormous amount of circumstantial evidence. I haven't seen it, but I'm waiting to hear your thoughts. Take a break. Back in a minute. Or 843 It's not one 866 to tell ken It's one 866 ken and the millions and millions That's of right. listeners. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Steve in Florence. Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Hey, morning, guys. Talking about conspiracy theories, and I heard the moon land, and I don't believe that for a second. You can live stream in real time, 1969. You can barely do a Zoom call today. I don't believe it. But... <laughs> When you talk about these conspiracy theories, nobody ever talks about the end game. Um, whether it's you go real far into it, like Bill Gates saying that 80% of the population needs to die, or the, what we can see today is the devaluation of our dollar going into socialism. What happens when we get to that point without you know, a war breaking out? I think there's enough of us out there that wouldn't put up with any of that crap. Like, What's the end game here? Nobody ever talks about it, and I'll take that off the air. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I mean, I think the end game for the Democrats is to give government more and more and more and more control. I think the biggest uh, fear that the Democrats have is those of us who celebrate liberties and freedoms. I mean, I think that's why they attack people is, I mean, you know, if you're if you're somewhat, it's interesting how in America, you know, the, the processes, words have taken on new meanings. Um, uh, a liberty lover, a freedom fighter. I mean, to me, they have positive connotations. When CNN talks about, you know how those liberty lovers are, you know how those freedom fighters are. I mean, it's trying to marginalize those who really revere their, their personal liberties and independence. Um, I've got a title uh, called Ballots in the Wild. We talk about animals in the wild. To me, when you look at what happened in the 2020 presidential election, there were a number of ballots in the wild, um, the chain of custody, uh, and I'll go to 2,000 mules now. Um, I want to begin by saying 
Did you know that mail-in voting is disallowed? France just had an election between um, Trudeau and Le Pen. And in that election, um, mail-in voting was Trudeau, banned. Macron. Uh, Macron, yeah, yeah Macron. Trudeau's, Trudeau's Canada. in Canada, but Macron. Yeah. Uh, you're right. Macron and Le Pen, and um, one, one of those liberal, <laughs> you know, socialist leaders, um, Trudeau, Macron, same thing. Mm. Uh, so anyway, mail-in voting in France has been outlawed since 1975. Why? Security issues. Um, France is one of the oldest, quote-unquote, democracies in the world, and um, they've decided as a national issue that mail-in balloting uh, just can't be trusted. So it's outlawed. I mean, you cannot mail-in ballot uh, since 1975 in France. Um, every French voter who voted for um, Macron or Le Pen had to show an ID before they were allowed uh, to cast a ballot. Hmm. So we live in a very, when somebody says, you know, the right to vote, Americans have far more rights to vote than we probably should. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, if you want to jump past the argument and get to what I think needs to happen, um, outlaw mail-in balloting, uh, mail-in voting should be illegal. Just abolish it. Um, is, is there certain circumstances? Uh, I would imagine that we can create a courier system or something, uh, but, but mail-in balloting or mail-in voting should be made illegal. So here's what, um, and in, in France, they did this deep dive. BBC reported on what France did, but um, you know what the number one indicator of voter fraud was uh, per their report in France that led to some of these um, stringent requirements? Delay in announcing results. They were beginning to have a lot of delays in announcing results that led them to believe, well, why can't this um, county count their votes when all the other counties have? And it led to corruption. It led to um, rigging of elections, so to speak. So France basically was motivated by um, the delay in accounting results or announcing results led to, you know, um, no mail-in ballots, uh, voter ID. Uh, and then we, you know, the Democrats in America today. And here's why the Democrats, I'm sorry, Dems, I love you, but here's why you won't lax voting requirements, because you don't believe you can win fair and square. I mean, that's just the truth of it. You don't believe the American people will fall for abortion under any circumstance, under any condition. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but the Schumer bill has sex-selective abortion. I'm having a girl, but I wanted a boy. Oh, really? And we're only eight months into this thing. So so let's, you know, let's abort this baby and have another. Um, chastised last week, but I think my point has been proven uh, through the past week, the Democrats celebrate abortion. They celebrate killing babies. They take joy in that. Back to 2,000 mules. Um, the meat of the film, as far as I'm concerned, and the, the most important part of the hour and a half is this interview with a lady named Catherine Engelbrecht and, Gray, and Greg Phillips. They are of true the vote. Once again, at the end of it, they've got a lot of different personalities, given a lot of different opinions, but true the vote bought and analyzed cell phone tracking data from several swing states collected by advertisers in the months leading up to election day. A lot of this was behind the scenes, and I'm going to give the Trump administration a little bit of credit. Um, go back to some of the debates when Trump said there are going to be more cheating in this election than you could ever imagine. That forced uh, some of the moderators to say, will you accept the outcome of the election? So Trump gave some fair warning publicly but they didn't do much to prepare for uh, what was going to be inevitable. So the most important part of the movie to me, 
or the documentary to me is when they sit down and speak with the two people who did the majority of data research and analytics. And um, he said, she said, um, the data shows a suspiciously high number of what they refer to as devices. Now, that would be individuals. That would be mules. Devices eventually turns into mules who made repeat trips to and from some of these um, American Center for Tech and Civic Life endorsed NGOs. That's not for profits. Um, Back and forth from state ballot boxes uh, in Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Detroit. Those were the three main cities. Now, Milwaukee was on the radar screen. I think uh, Maricopa County, Arizona was a part of the research. But the majority of what they found, the improprieties, or the things you can't explain. I'll give you an example. Let, let's do this real quick. So in one drop box, there were 1,972 votes. I mean, the, the tally. Every election has a tally. Um, so, so the tally on this drop box showed 1,972 votes in a 24-hour period on, let's say, October 30th. I mean, I'm picking that down. I don't know what the day was. But on a random day leading up to the election, 1,972 votes were cast and counted from this drop box in a 24-hour period. Um, in other words, the chain of custody. They go that night, and they empty the drop box, and then they report. We had 1,972 votes yesterday out of this drop box. During that cu- chain of custody period, 270, they got video surveillance. So they got 4 million hours of video surveillance. So in that 24-hour period of time that 1,972 votes were cast, counted, 271 people dropped ballots in that voting, in that drop box. So the video shows 271 people go to that drop box in that 24-hour period of time, but the chain of custody shows that 1,972 votes were cast, counted, and certified mm. in that this in um this in Gwinnett County, Gwinnett County, Georgia. Um, that's in that 24-hour. So that means every single person voted 7.27 times. I mean, that's on average. If you if you kind of be reasonable here, let's say half of the people were not mules. That means 135 people voted on their own. You know, they Dave Baker couldn't be there. He got a mail-in ballot. The drop box is near where he works. He goes, he puts the ballot in, and he moves on. Let's just for argument say, say 135 people didn't do this. Um, that means 137 voted 1,837 times for an average of 14. That there were there was one mule in Gwinnett County, no Fulton County, Fulton County, Georgia, that visited in one day, forty-two drop boxes, in one single day. They've got the geo tracking. Um, they're pinging him. That once again, twenty-seven terabytes of data from the phone companies. And, and remember, when you go to um, your local big box and they ask for your phone number, and you often say, "Why do you need my phone number? I'm buying a, an air conditioner filter." You know, I'm buying a car. Why do you need my cell phone number? Well, a lot of this, they sell that information to advertisers, and the advertisers use this geo-tracking and geofencing, and they kind of monitor you. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they monitor where you go and what you do. And um, so the cell phone data is what they use to analyze, and they create these tracks. You know, where do these people go every day? And they go in great specificity about one person uh, in Philadelphia. Now, but they identified uh, what they believe and suspect to be 1,150 mules that visited 45 drop boxes, five, no, 15,417 times. They believe that there is 275,000 estimated 
illegal votes cast in Philadelphia alone. Now, that's an astronomical number. In fact, uh, the total number in question is 380,000, and that would be 275 in Pennsylvania, 125 in Michigan, 14,000 in Wisconsin, uh, 30,000 in Georgia, 20,000 in Arizona. Think about this, guys. What was the most important state for the Democrats to win? Pennsylvania. I mean, they can't win it. So it seems to me Pennsylvania is where they had the most aggressive effort. I mean, it was just totally, um, I mean, I think it was orchestrated. I'm sorry. 2,000 mules doesn't prove anything. But 1,972 votes were were accounted for in this chain of custody in a 24-hour period where the video shows 271 people dropped votes in that drop box. Come on, guys. I mean, are we this stupid? You can't, I mean, your hatred for Trump, the Trump derangement syndrome has to stop somewhere. I mean, this can't be an unlimited dose of, of derangement syndrome. I mean, there has to be some getting off point for everybody and anybody. And when 1,972 votes are counted and only 271 people drop votes in that drop box, you got to all believe something doesn't make sense there. Now, this is rampant. I mean, it's all over uh, Philadelphia. It's all over Fulton County. It's all over Maricopa County. It's all over Detroit. Uh, once again, in um, in Georgia, they believe 242 mules, uh, traffickers, uh, and it's ballot trafficking is what it is, but they believe 242 mules made 5,662 trips to ballot boxes after midnight and before 5 a.m. in the morning. How are we not going to investigate this? I am the leader of the charge in Don't Look Back. Stop thinking about yesterday. Got to move to tomorrow. Isn't there a Fleetwood Mac song? Something about that? Something uh, about that. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. I think it was Clinton's. Yeah, uh, don't stop. Yeah, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Um, and I, and I, I still believe that. And I think the Democrats have so many issues in this campaign, but we've got to, we've got to investigate this. I'm sorry, but I've changed my mind. talk about those astronomical numbers, I mean, remember the margin of certified victory, all right, certified in quotes here, but the certified results were just a tiny fraction of these numbers of questionable ballots we're talking about. And they're getting $10 a ballot. So if 100,000 ballots in Pennsylvania would cost somebody a million dollars, Zuckerberg spent $450 million with about 65 NGOs, that's not-for-profits, that, that were very leftist in orientation. So that's not a lot of money. About 100000 to to you and I, it's a million bucks. But to Zuckerberg, or Zuckerbuck, and, uh, I mean, I, that's not a lot of money, guys. You were getting ready to say, so you've changed your mind on... I, I, no, I, I'm not, no, I've not changed my mind in that we've not proven anything. We still have not proven anything. But there's so much circumstantial evidence between what Bill Doyle found out with some of the statistical anomalies, uh, the the 91 percent of senior homes in Wisconsin that had a voter turnout of an excess of 95 percent. That's never heard. I mean, that, that doesn't happen. I mean, anybody knows that that's just absurd. I mean, you can't believe that to be true. Now, now once again, there's a difference in circumstantial evidence and hard proof. We don't have any proof of anything. Here's what you need to do. I mean, if I were in charge of the world, I'm not, but if I were, they, they have a lot of video surveillance. We've got license plate numbers of people who um, were, were doing the, the trafficking. I mean, they're the mules, the 2,000 mules. 
um, track them down and, and force them to answer questions under oath. Who are you working for? Uh, did, did When we've got you going to this drop box four times on the day that 1,972 votes were, were counted and only 271, you were one of the 271 people who voted or dropped ballots off at this drop box. We've got 1,972. We've got you on video, um, you know, taking uh, v- ballot after ballot after ballot. But they'll stand there three or four minutes with a backpack. And they'll just put ballots in the ballot in the drop box. Um, who are you doing that for? And if he says, my mom, my dad, my sister's sick, my brother's in the army, then let's go talk to them. I mean, let's find out whether, did your daughter vote for you? Did your daughter, I mean, uh, Walker, let's investigate. Once again. And if it's legit, let's prove it. 2,000 mules didn't prove anything. It didn't prove a single um, iotum of discrepancy. But it certainly um, put forth enough circumstantial evidence to, to lead to a more formal investigation. And if the Republicans win, and once again, I'm the guy that says, let's look forward. But you can't let this go. You just can't let this go without somebody being held accountable. And and once again, Rev, when I say, I mean, there's certain things I just say. Barack Obama got fewer votes in Detroit of African-American Democrats than Joe Biden did. 91, per, 91 senior homes in Wisconsin had um, voter participation in excess of 95%. Come on. Joe Biden locked himself in a, in a basement and got more votes than anybody in the history of American politics, 81 million votes. Donald Trump had 62 million, 61.5 million in 2016, and nearly 75 million in 2020, and still lost by 6 million votes. I mean, those lead to a certain suspicion, and the suspicion is unhealthy for our democracy. And if if 2,000 mules puts forth in a very effective way all of this circumstantial evidence, it deserves to be investigated. Somebody has to find out from these 2,000 people, were you doing God's work and helping people who couldn't help themselves? Or was somebody paying you to transport illegal ballots back and forth from NGOs, not-for-profits, to drop boxes all over Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona. In the middle of the night. From 12 midnight until 5. That's when the majority of activity was. And they wear these latex gloves, and it shows them taking the gloves off. And wow, take a break. Back in a minute. Welcome back, 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Barry in Chirac. Good morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, there's there, there's people sitting in federal prison for less, uh, for ten to twenty years on conspiracy charges. Uh, they have video, they have the geo tracking, and you're telling me that nobody's doing anything about it. They're all in on it. Ken. There is no investigation that I yeah. know of, and exactly. I, I actually went last night after I watched the movie yesterday afternoon, and I and I I said, you know, is there an investigation about? You know, the, the discrepant, no, that there is no investigation. They've kind of swept it under the rug and nothing to see here. Let's move on. So so Barr comes out and says it was, you know, everybody comes out and talking points. Remember that? It was the uh, cleanest election of all time, right? Everybody knew it was not true. So this comes out. So nothing's done. Like I said, there's guys sitting in federal prisons all over the United States for less. January 6th, guys are sitting up there for misdemeanors two years without any charges. Right. It's all on purpose. I keep saying that. But look, they knew about the Russian collusion and they did nothing about it. Right. They knew it wasn't true. They kept going with it. 
right? They spied on Trump, right? Uh, they just come out with the Secretary of Defense under Trump actually blocked four things. Him and Milley blocked. They they had like a, a coup where they would block stuff from doing what Trump said to do. You can't. You're the Secretary of Defense, not the President. So everybody, it's a cabal. It's everybody up there in D.C. is a swamp. They're all together. It's a uniparty. Look what Mitch McConnell did yesterday. Forty bill. He's going to do the forty billion. He's going to send it. They're going to wash the money, and they're all going to get the money back over here. It goes to Ukraine, comes back, and it all goes in the pockets. So, at what point do the American public? Just say we're tired of it. That That's what I keep getting. Well, I, th- I think we're saying, thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. I think we're saying we're tired of it, but saying you're tired of it and changing the fundamentals of government are two different things. It's going to take a while. I mean, all we can do, well, I've got to take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and I'll elaborate back in a few. I want to go back to Barry for a couple of seconds. We're in the third hour, if I'm not mistaken, uh, city council member and county council candidate. William Schofield will be with us in just a bit, and we'll kind of go down the road of his campaign. Uh, he's running in the June primary as a Republican um, candidate against Buddy Brand, who was with us Friday um, in local politics. But I want to go back to something Barry was talking about, because you hear the frustration, but you also hear the passion. And if we're going to genuinely re- respect what our founders intended, and that is a representative republic, uh, a limited government, there has to be some degree of, of oversight and seriousness of oversight. Um, they're very damn serious in finding out what Trump and his crowd have done, not so much. And all this is not, I mean, it's politically motivated, but it's all about the, the people who have so much control over our federal government. You know, we throw words around like uh, kleptocracies and oligarchs and plutocracies and oligarchies and, you know, representative republics and democracies. I will say this, and this is probably as aggressive as I'll get on this single issue. If we are indeed uh, a version or iteration of a democracy, we've got to investigate what happened in 2020. But there's too much evidence out there. There's too much um, circumstantial. It's not proven, but, but let's find out whether it's valid or not. Let's find out whether these were legitimate votes or not. Let's not blow it off and move on. Um, and I'm the move on guy. Right. So and, you have kind of well, changed I mean, I, your well, tune. I mean, I'm not changing my tune, the, Ray. The evidence is compelling enough I, to you. I, I've never disagreed that there need to be some investigation about what happened in 2016, but I'm the mayor of Realville, or excuse me, in 2020. And the mayor of Realville in me says that when the court said we're not going to intervene and when the state certified, it's time to just take your whipping and go on. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, but but now someone has done um, an enormous amount of research that has led to a a documentary that is going to be relevant. Um, if I were running a political action committee, I'm not, but if I were, and I had $100 million, if I'm Save America, here you go, if I'm Save America and I've got $100 million in a super PAC, you know what I do? I free download this documentary to every Republican primary voter in Georgia in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and in Arizona. Um, you know, a lot of people believe something happened, but they're not as enthusiastic as we are. Therefore, they're not plunking down the twenty nine ninety nine to and sitting down for an hour and a half. But if I had a super PAC and I had $100 million, 
I mean, I could buy a lot of $29 subscriptions. Maybe I could call Dinesh D'Souza and say, would you cut me a deal if I, or, you know, if I buy $3 million? Um, a million downloads would be $29 million. I don't want to spend all the money. But, um, but yeah, that, that's what I do. I try to get him to do it $10. You know, can we download it? If I give you, you know, $25 million, will you give me uh, a deal? Can you, can you sell it to me for, or can you allow me to stream it uh, to, to my, God, I don't want to say customer base, but, you know, my roster for $10 per. And I think, you know, that many people being allowed to watch that movie or documentary in, in, in a free format would be very intriguing. I would imagine technology is there to find out who downloaded it, who watched it in its entirety, who did not. Um, but, but I've always felt an investigation was necessary. What, what you and Cato refused to believe is, um, you didn't refuse to believe it. What, what it was hard for you to accept was we're really going to move on. Right. I mean, there, there's something here and we're really going to move on. And I guess having been in politics, I accepted that. Yes, we're going to move on. I mean, I sat here, you sat there one morning and I said, Rev, the courts are not going to hear this. The courts have made a decision. They're not going to change the outcome of an election. They're not going to be involved in it. And then we had certifications in the varying states and we'd argue about the constitutionality or not of the certification. But once again, being the mayor of Realville, I kind of see that train leaving but the barn was disheartening. or horse leaving the station. Yes, disheartening. And it ain't right. I mean, let, let's be <laughs> candid. I mean, it says it ain't right, it ain't uh, right. To, to not investigate when you've got that much circumstantial evidence. But I do think it's time now for us to open. Um, and I think if the Republicans win, the Jim Jordans of the world, uh, the J.D. Vances of the world, this new version, uh, the Josh Hawley's of the world, what we've got to do, and Barry was talking to this for a second ago, you know, what needs to happen? Well, I mean, you got you to pick these guys off one by one. I mean, if you're an America firster, J.D. Vance is a much better, better ally than Rob Portman. I mean, who's the best ally in Pennsylvania? I don't know. Who's the best? Herschel Walker would, would be the guy. Uh, I don't know what Herschel's uh, depth of understanding of American politics is. I don't have any idea. But he's kind of loyal to Trump. That loyalty to Trump kind of plays into the America first agenda, America first brand. And, you know, I'm not, con- I'm not condemning or con- I'm not, excuse me, I'm not condoning everything about America first, but, but the, the America first part of the party seems to be more interested in things the establishment are not. Mitch McConnell on day one said, we got to move on. You can't look back. Now, now I think we can get boxed in. We'd be in the right if we're not careful by paying too much attention to the um to the documentary and the statistical anomalies and the the things we can't explain i mean i don't think that can be the sole focus of what we're doing today i think the majority of our energy needs to be spent on how bad the democrats are governing inflation and ukraine i mean we're slow walking to conflict trust me we're slow walking to a higher degree of involvement and i expect any day now to hear the European Union, or excuse me, the uh, the NATO nations endorse a European no-fly zone. That's coming. I mean, I'm convinced of that. Sam, you hear me? I know you don't like it, and I don't like it. And we've kind of forewarned one another about, you know, escalation and in, in, in kind of an increasing of intensity in our involvement there. But that's where we're headed because that's what the oligarchs want. That's what the plutocracy insists. Um, and I think, you know, we, when, when Barry gets so frustrated and bothered, and, and you can hear it in his voice. 
He wants things to happen right now. Well, I think things have happened. Uh, we had a, you know, we got a Senate seat in Pennsylvania up for grabs. We got Blake Masters in Arizona. I don't know if Blake Masters can win or not, but these are proven America first um, candidates. And J.D. Vance in Ohio, Herschel Walker in Georgia. Um, how many converts are there? Um, I'm still suspicious of the converts. Um, I'm suspicious of some of our representatives and their conversion to America first. Because um, my loyalty is not to Donald Trump. I mean, I think Trump got jobbed out of the 2020 election, but my loyalty is not to Donald Trump. My loyalties lie with someone being able to break this uniparty. That's a duopoly. It's a uniparty disguising itself as a duopoly. I mean, that's kind of what it is. I mean, everybody's kind of in on the fix as long as you've been there long enough to know how the fix works. And, um, and it's kind of corporate interest in Wall Street and Washington and bureaucracies and government agency heads and kind of the, the revolving door. You know, they leave Goldman, go to Treasury, leave Treasury, go to J.P. Morgan, leave J.P. Morgan, go back to the Treasury. And they do that for 25 or 30 years. Um, so, so that's my loyalty. My loyalty is not all about Trump. My, mine is to this political movement that I think is necessary and much needed to ah, hold one party accountable. I mean, the Democrats are doing exactly what we've always expected or suspected uh, they were going to do. Bigger and bigger government, more and more spending, um, you know, uh, trying to impede on your rights and your liberties and your freedoms and impose government's will on the masses. I mean, that's kind of what the modern, uh, what I'd call the um, the, the modern contemporary polit- uh, Democrat in America today um they're not for the working class. I mean, they side with government. And, and I think there's a great opportunity here. And I keep going back to the blank sheet of paper. We're, we're writing the first verse of Thunder Road. I mean, we had not got to the end yet. Barry wants to write it all today. Uh, a lot of you want to write it all today. But it's too heavy a lift. I mean, there's too much work to be done. And we're going to have setbacks. I mean, there are going to be periods of time you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. But, but ultimately, the... The, the the reality is the uniparty disguising as a duopoly have basically governed the country not in your best interest. And and you're you're desirous of having the country governed so you're equally represented to an Exxon, you know, to, to some of the um oligarchs, some of the um some of the corporate interest. That's not an easy task, guys. I mean that's not going to happen overnight. So when you have a setback or two or three, just accept it as part of the evolution part of the process, part of the journey. But we're getting to a better place. I'm sure of that. That the one polling number I pay most attention to um, day by day by day is the number of Republican voters who identify as America first. I mean, that's an important number to me. I've never seen the number lower later than it was before. Now, it's fairly steady right now at somewhere between 63 and 65%. That means two of three. That means the battle's over. I mean, we've won the, the, the battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. I mean, there are one-third of Republican primary voters who have no problem with McConnell doing things the way McConnell did things. I mean, it's kind of the Bush world order. I mean, you know, the, the Bush dynasty, so to speak, his father and his son. I mean, I think they were decent people. I don't think they were bad guys. I think George H.W. Bush is probably as reputable a man that has been in the White House in my lifetime. I mean, very celebrated, very decorated, very honorable, very decent. But but he was a globalist. I mean, he was not an America firster. He was a globalist. He was a transnationalist. He was an internationalist. Um, he was an elitist. He was an establishment Republican. And his son was no different. I mean, his son had some issues. 
you know, he was um, an alcoholic and found Jesus and got, you know, his life right. And a lot of that, a lot of his policymaking was based in that, you know, uh, born again ism, so to speak. But we've never had an opportunity to uh, exert enormous change on a political party like we have right now. Had Bernie Sanders won the Democrat primary, both parties would be fundamentally repositioning or reimagining themselves as we speak. But but the Democrats um, are still a party of Obama. They're still a very leftist party, very liberal party, very radical party as far as I'm concerned. Um, and they're demonstrating that over and over and over again. And they've kind of got the perfect scenario. They, they've got a dunce who's in cognitive decline, uh, who has been on the take for probably most of his political career. Um, and that's the perfect guy to, to basically, um, you know, perpetrate the scam. And so, so Obama and his acolytes are really in charge uh, of the Democrat Party. They've just got this figurehead that, uh, I mean, he reads the teleprompter, but he doesn't know if it's coming or going. I mean, does anybody really believe that when they have the meetings about policy or direction or priorities, does anybody really believe that Biden sets the policy or the direction or the priorities? Nobody believes that. I mean, if you do, um, you believe the election was fair and square and there's nothing to see here. And, and you know, one of, one of the, I don't know, when we talk about things in context, one of the most interesting points I think I can make is how deep the Trump derangement syndrome really is. I mean, it's so interesting to me how, how I mean, it's perplexing to me how someone could be that fundamentally opposed to a guy who really didn't have extreme policies. I mean, when you think about Trumpism, if there is such a thing, it was a, a fairly conservative, orthodox uh, Republican platform. I mean, it was lower taxes. It was deregulation. And we can debate, you know, and I, I, I'm i not sure that I like the tax cuts because I think they were too heavily weighted to corporate interest. I mean, I said it, and I think Dr. Thickpin and I both agreed that some of the Bush, uh, excuse me, some of the Trump tax cuts were uh, too much about corporate America, too little about, you know, Main Street. Uh, we, we can have some of these disagreements. I applaud Larry for calling in earlier and saying it's, it's just fundamentally, excuse me, I think as he said, intellectually dishonest to say all of this inflation is, is Biden's uh, fault. No, I mean, I, you know, the Republicans did some pretty insane things in the early days of COVID when they approved the, the CARES 1 and the CARES 2 and the American Rescue Plan, and we uh, created money out of thin air. I mean, imagine the uh, imagine a nation with the ability to create money out of thin air, you know. And I mean, that, that's just kind of weird, bizarre to me that uh, we believe that we're not fundamentally in trouble when we create money out of thin air. You know, the most powerful nation on the planet. I heard Tucker Carlson last night say, you know, talking about the Chinese government, and he says they are the most powerful government on on planet Earth. That was Tucker's shot. I mean, he said that last night. He didn't say, "Listen to what I'm about to say." But Tucker's pretty strategic. And the way he intertwines some of these things. And last night's the first time I've ever heard him say, you know, the Chinese government, which is the most powerful government on the planet. That's his shot across the bow at the way we've governed uh, our country's affairs. But, I mean, today, uh, we, we said it before and I'll say it today, the government will appropriate funds that they don't have. The Fed will buy that debt with money they don't have by simply creating fiat currency that is worth less today than it's ever been. And that's uh, how are we serious as a nation when that's the way we, you know, manage the nation's political and economic affairs? It's bizarre a world as far as I'm concerned. 
And I guess if I were to um, ask something of America first, just impose some version of sanity. You know, maybe America first has six or eight uh, political priorities, but, but nothing's more important than demanding some sense of financial sanity. I mean, we got to stop the craziness. And, um, and Jan Psaki yesterday says, and I quote, nobody saw this kind of inflation coming. Um, once again, I'm, I'm in, a, in a world of normal people who have been moderately successful in business. Nobody in my world didn't see this coming. Everybody knew uh, some of the macroeconomic forces that we were going to deal with and the inflationary pressures that were going to be inevitable that will lead to the decline or devaluing of the dollar and make you and I fundamentally poor. I mean, that's what's happened. Um, Rev, you probably make the same thing you made a year ago. Um, you're poor today. I mean, if you didn't get a, about a 20% pay raise, um, you've got less money. I mean, you, the, you know, your paycheck is worth less today than it was a year ago. Um, so, so there's the, the issue at hand. You know, we've got this 2,000 mules. We've got this political reality of, you know, how much attention do we pay to that or not. Um, we all believe that something doesn't make sense. We all believe that somebody did, did the deep dive and created the circumstantial evidence that could lead to a potential investigation. What I don't want us to do is lose sight of what lies ahead. Let's not forget that we have races in January, excuse me, in June. We have races in November. We need Republic. We need America first. So I'm going to stop saying that. I'm going to stop saying we need Republican victories. What is the difference if Mitch McConnell wins and Chuck Schumer wins? I mean, seriously, if you're a Republican voter, is the country better off? I mean, I guess when it comes to justices, you know, he did. Uh, so let's give him a little credit. I mean, the guy shepherded uh, that process effectively by getting Gorsuch, um, Kavanaugh, and Barrett on the court. Um, but could J.D. Vance not have done that? You know, we give McConnell a lot of credit. But but who's to say that Rand Paul couldn't have done it? Or Mike Lee couldn't have done it? Or Ted Cruz couldn't have done it? Um, you know, uh, how many times did we hear that uh, McConnell's a master of the uh, the way the Senate works, the processes, the procedures of the Senate. Nobody knows it like McConnell, do they? I mean, I understand that's a talking part of the New York Times, and I understand it's, uh, it's been political speak forever. Maybe it might have come out of McConnell's office. Yeah, but, but how do we know that? I mean, how do we know that he knows more about how to get Supreme Court justices um, through than Rand Paul or than J.D. Vance that's for that marketing, matter? Uh, sure it is. I mean, I, I know the way this world works, therefore, you know, put me back in, in places of influence and power. And I'll tell you, I believe the Republican primary voter today would rather have someone who knows less than who knows more. And, you know, that's kind of oxymoronic. Why do you send a novice when you got a chance to send an expert? You want a, um, you want a proven heart doctor doing your heart surgery, or you want some guy that just got there? Of course. You want you know, the experience. Yeah, do you want the guy that's been um, an engineer for 20 years building that bridge across the river, or do you want the guy that just got there? I mean, there's a little bit of... Um, it's it's weird how we but we but but we we got there we were forced there we didn't lead ourselves to that trough of, of food I mean we were forced there by the failures of people who have been there forever and um and I think you know when I look at the race in in West Virginia the House race before we take our next break and then we'll have Councilman Schofield um it just it, when you get two incumbents running against one another in a consolidated district because West Virginia lost population and the guy that didn't get endorsed by trump running against the guy that did get endorsed by trump gets the magic number the number of republicans who consider themselves to be anti-trump is about 33 34 35 it looks to me like 
that's about the ceiling. If you vote to establish a commission to investigate January 6th, as McKinley did in West Virginia, or you vote to impeach Donald Trump, as Congressman Tom Ross did. We shall see. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 or 1-866-TELL-KEN, not tell Mike to tell Ken. We've had a few too many of those tell Mike to tell Ken. I actually had somebody saying, um, here's how you illegally watch 2,000 Mules. We ain't passing along. We're not, uh, we're not trafficking in, uh, in illegal ways to, um, to view. Mike, tell me when we get off the air, because I, <laughs> I got some buddies of mine who don't want to pay the 29 the $29. Hey, um, Councilman William Schofield is with us this morning, and it's kind of an interesting morning for him to be here. We've talked a lot in the last hour, well, really since the show began this morning, uh, really since the show began 10 years ago, about the need for new leadership. You know, there, there's kind of a um, an appetite in American politics today, out with the old, in with the new. Uh, Philip Lowe talks a lot about, you know, don't throw all the old out because all the old doesn't need to be uh, replaced. And I'm not here to say who needs to be replaced or who does not, but there is a... There's an element within the Republican primary voter that believes new and fresh is something that, that kind of excites them. In other words, Rev, they're willing to, they're not going to let the, the guy that just graduated from med school do heart surgery, but they are willing to let them give him an opinion. Uh, it seems to me that Republican primary voters are more interested now in new and fresh than they've ever been. Um, Councilman Schofield comes from a political family. Your father was a member of both city and county council. You know how much love I held or how in high, what high regard I held your dad in. But you are running as somewhat of a newer and fresher face in, uh, in Florence. Yes, Ken. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, so, you know, our current leadership has been in for quite some time, and they've, they have done marvelous things for both our city and our county. You won't hear me say one bad thing about them. And I've not as, heard you say as, anything as, bad. I'm as, proud of that. Well, you got to run a clean campaign. Um, that's just the nature of it. That's the way my dad would have done it. That's the way that I'm going to do it. Um, th- there are certain things that we've got to continue and hold dear to us that we were taught. But, you know, the, the next generation brings a whole, whole different ball game to the table. Um, we bring fresh ideas. Nothing changes if nothing changes. That it, that it doesn't get any simpler than that. Um, but we've, we're going to have to be able to partner with the previous generations that have served on these councils and not to the point to where they get too old for us to be able to actually ask them questions when they get in front of us for their advice on, and wisdom on what to do in these situations. There has to become some point that we transition to the next generation to bring in those new ideas and new new ways of thinking in order to pair them with what current leadership or previous leadership has done or seen and come before them on these councils. Um, I, I look forward to it. I look forward. I think Florence, and uh, as both a city and a county, has a very bright future. But uh, we've got to begin focusing on a, on a quality of life that we can – actually uh recruit the families to be here just based on what we have to offer them and our services um, I, i've said it over and over again and you know some people are like well that's not necessarily the county's job is infrastructure well it can be if we begin that bridge that gap even further with the city to where we actually partner with them further to fix our existing water lines fix our existing sewer lines and i don't just mean fix i mean replace and enhance um, the county used to own the water. 
there's certain council county, county council members now that'll tell you that was the worst decision of their life to sell. I'm one. I mean, it, it was sold before I got to council in 2004, and I'm one that said that was just a terrible decision on behalf of the county. So I feel if we're able to bring that new mindset and bring those fresh new ideas um, and, and, a, and, a, and a, an enriched passion, that's not saying that the guys don't have passion. Every single person serving has a passion, and they have a love for where we live. But a renewed passion, trying to provide for the generations after us, you know, my grandfather told me and my father told me long ago, and, and you know, this is a ho- old hardware store uh, story. You know, I, w- I had to walk those aisles with my grandfather every day. He'd walk me down them up and down. You'll, you'll never miss something, and you'll always see things and hear things on that sales floor if you walk the aisles every day. And he said, William, I didn't build this for your father. I didn't build it for you. I built it for the, your generation after you. And we've got to get focused on that and what type of infrastructure system we are going to be leaving the generations after us because if we just continue to say well you got to have the money you got to figure out the money well let's figure it out let's figure it out because we can't just keep ignoring the the, the sheer fact of our infrastructure system is crumbling we, we can't ignore our, our quality of life and quality of life isn't just infrastructure i mean that's actual people you know they're if they feel safe in their home that is you know things for them to do you know, if we begin to actually attract families here based off our vision, and I don't mean councils, I mean the public's vision, these outside companies will want to come here because of how invested we are in ourselves. The families will want to stay instead of getting here and then going, wow, what was this? What did we do this for? Let, let's go back. No, I, I want to attract new families here based on the quality of life that they have here. One thing that you've talked a lot about, and you talk about quality of life and attracting new people to Florence and the PD region for that matter, is um, crime and public safety and law enforcement. Uh, One ad in particular gets my attention when you say the county has more money than they've ever had, yet declined to, I don't want to say fully fund, because you know what's fully, I mean, law enforcement have one idea of fully fund, council have another idea of fully fund. Explain yourself more than just a 30-second commercial about what you mean by the county having more money than they've ever had, and we may or may not be underfunding law enforcement. Sure. Uh, so a certain member of council came on your show and stated that the county has more money on hand than they've ever had. And I can vouch for that. The county has more money on hand than they've ever had. Um, and if that was the case, then, you know, where I felt with that when I heard that was, I have friends that work in both the city police force, the sheriff's office, both with uh, firefighters on both sides, EMS, and all these guys, they risk their lives for us every single day. But we were literally losing sheriff's deputies to other agencies because someone that worked with the sheriff's office for X amount of time was getting paid what a city police officer got right out of the academy. That's, that's not equitable. We, we ask these guys to, to risk their lives for us every single day. You know, when I was in the military, we had a, a, a tiered system uh, of, of how we got paid, right? And if you went to a different school, you got paid a little more. And then when it was time to, to re-up, you, you probably qualified for a re-enlistment bonus. You know, there, there's certain things that we could probably be doing to help encourage more to, to stay, but also to bring in new We've got counties all over this state. We've got the federal government all 
trying to recruit off our officers because we have quality officers serving us. When it comes to crime, you're talking about the pay situation with law enforcement, but we've had a, a very extensive conversation, and I think Mike Rickenbaugh will be with us on Friday with Philip Lowe and maybe Jay Jordan. Uh, we're talking about magistrates and appointment of um, magistrates and um, some of the bonds and bails and whatnot. Some of the uh, it's not sentencing guidelines because we're not sentencing. We're setting bond or setting bail. Um, county council doesn't have a dog in that fight. You're not in control of who of the magistrates are, what sort of bond or bail they set. But but you've expressed concern uh, along with Councilman Braddock that we do indeed have a crime problem. What can county council do uh, to address the increasing crime uh, in Florence County? Well. Like you said, we, we almost don't have a dog in the fight but with the judicial system. Uh, we do have a voice to our state representatives who select those individuals. But, I mean, the biggest thing that is on a, on a city council or a county council level is, you know, we're able to directly fund those agencies. We're able to uh, directly affect them with ordinances we write. And, and how we support them will actually be able to help support the judicial system as well. Um, but again, going back to, you know, being able to communicate with our state elected leaders and letting them know exactly what's going on here so that they can then make the decisions on who's in those positions is it, critical. And, um, you know, there's that term, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I say it all the time. There, there are people in this city that are, will go on and on and on about an issue. And then you see that issue get resolved. You see people pour into a council meeting. What does council do? They typically will go with the people. The people will elect you. We need to be listening to the people and what they want. Last question before I let you get out of here. I've got just sitting over here to my side. You see it, a stack of papers. It's a lawsuit that the county will have to deal with. I would imagine um, it will not be completely dealt with by the time you or um, Councilman Brand are elected in November. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Um what is your opinion of uh, the the low-income housing development being constructed in an area? I'm not saying do you think it should be built or not, but how did we get in this complicated position with zoning donut holes and all these other sorts of things? Well, I don't know exactly how we all got into this position. I know from just from reading things that my father has had, uh, you know, zoning was very important to him. Uh, that was one of the last things he ran on the last time he got elected. And uh, he just didn't make it uh, to be able to see any of that through with his fellow council members. Uh, do I think they're trying to address it? Yeah, they are. If you drive through your neighborhood right now, there's probably 20 to 50 zoning signs sitting in your neighborhood right now. Um, I don't know what they're there for. I had somebody send me a picture of it last night, but I would assume that it is they're trying to fix the donut hole issues. Um, and, and get the correct zonings in place. And as far as, you know, these LIHTC housings, that has come from way up above us from the national level, mm -hmm. incentivizing that. Uh, is there a need for affordable housing? Yes, there is. I've said it over and over again that we're over 40% rental rate. Um, you know, 17% of that, from what I've been told, is multifamily. The whole thing isn't multifamily housing, the 42, 41%. I don't have those numbers in front of me to accurately, mm -hmm. so don't hold me to those. But we are higher than the national and the state average as far as rentals. But we've got to be able to figure out how to get these investors and developers to invest in some of our dilapidated old 
facilities and buildings, knock those down, and beautify it. They, you know, they, they some of the developers came to us. We, we do things and we make it prettier. Well, if you take a natural green space and you put up a big concrete block, that's not really making it prettier. But if you find an old destroyed building or multiple buildings in a row and then you make something nice into it, make a nice gated community, make it a, a, a exclusive, make it something that people want. You know, everybody deserves a quality of life. But, you know, when you put them into these little tight cornered areas that are directly stacked on top of other people, and there's no way around it that these these kind of developments do lower your home value. Um, so do they need to be close to a, a nicer neighborhood? Sure, they do. Do they need to be um, closer to amenities? Sure, they do. But you don't stack them right on top of them. I mean, that's just not the way. And that's the result of some of the donut or lack of zoning, lack of uh, uh, lack of planning and zoning when it comes to Correct. allowing these donut holes. Um, last question. If somebody out there wants to support William Schofield, I mean, you're running hard. You've kind of gone to the reputation day. of running scared every day, and I think that's <laughs> the best way to run. I always ran like I was a 1,000 votes behind when I woke up in the morning. Um, how can people find out more about you, your campaign, and when the election is? Sure. Uh, like you said, I've, I've run this race as clean as possible, and I run it like I'm 20 points behind. I will not poll this. Uh, th there's no point in that. It's not going to change how I'm running and how hard and much passion as I have. Um, so you can contact me on my cell phone number. I feel that we need to be accessible. My cell phone number is 843-495-8333. My phone is on me all day. I, I want you to be able to call me. You need to be able to voice your concerns to me. You can go to my website, www.cwilliamscofield.com. You can go to my Facebook page. It's Schofield for Florence. You can personally friend request me, and I'll accept it on, on my normal Facebook page. Um, I have a, a Instagram as well. It's Schofield for Florence. Um, I, I just feel like we need to be more accessible. Okay. Thank but, you. Thank you, Ken. Good luck to you down I the road. It. I'm sure we'll see more of you and Councilman Buddy Brand as we get closer and closer to the June primary. Take a break. Back in just a couple of minutes. My brother and I would get out of school at 2.30 or 3. By 5 o'clock, we'd done something to deserve my father's wrath by the time he got home. And if you did that something stupid at 3.30, you had an hour and a half worth of waiting. Mm. You knew it was inevitable. <laughs> you knew what was going to happen because your mom had already told me, tell you, Daddy, when he gets home and your daddy ain't going to like this. And uh, I mean, if you did it at 4.45, everything was fluid. It all happened at about the same time. You did something stupid at 4.45. Your dad got home at 5.00. Um, I'm sorry, DSS, you got your whipping that you were asking for, but if you goofed up at three, the milk and cookies just wasn't quite as good at three 30 or four that your mom, cause you knew at five, what was coming. Well, there's a reason Joe Biden had an inflation press conference yesterday. He knew the whipping that was coming his way and the CPI checked in this morning at 8.3%. So, um, wow. yeah. That's like doing something stupid <laughs> and um, just go and give me my whipping now, man. I mean, let me take my medicine now. Don't um, You had access to those numbers yesterday, I'm sure. You I knew thought they were coming. about 8.3. Uh, yeah. yeah, I got a buddy of he mine was. who's in that world, and he said, I said, more or less than 8.5. He said, slightly less. And then he sent another text saying 8.3 is what he's hearing. Yeah, but I got a lot of these. I don't call them sources. They're, they're friendships and relationships. Saying, the president sure would have known when oh, he was out course. there talking about it. If I knew, it. he knew. Right. And I got a buddy, and I knew the number was probably somewhere between eight three 
and 8-5. So if I knew, you better believe he knew it was 8-3-ish. And um, that's a bad number. Anything north of seven is terrible, terrible, terrible. It really it translates to about 20% inflation. I mean, the CPI, CPI number is normally about, um, I mean, the real number is two and a half times more than what CPI is. So it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 20. Um, now, they'll argue 70% of the inflation is affected by fuel. And um, yeah, okay, so yeah. what? So what? Who doesn't have to buy fuel? I mean, that's, that's like saying, you know, the body lives with only 60% oxygen. You have to try without it. I mean, we can't, you know, none of us, I mean, the majority of us live in, I guess, in um, in urban settings, you know, when you're not buying gas. Okay, the, the price of fuel is incidental. But if you For live in, car. yeah, if you live in flower country where the majority of us live, um, you're having to buy gas and you're having to buy diesel. And today's 437, that is the most expensive gas has ever been in American history on average. $4.37. And that really goes back to um, the, the kind of the initial comment I made this morning about what when Carter got in to this situation, there was some sympathy for Carter. I mean, I was a kid, I don't really understand it, but Carter was always perceived to be a good and decent guy who just doesn't know how to do the job. Biden is not a good and decent guy. I'm sorry, he's not. Biden is a deal-making um career politician who has figured out and taken every advantage to create wealth within his family off the backs of the American taxpayer. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our numbers. So gas 437 a gallon, inflation at 8.3%. That's CPI measured. That probably translate. I mean, I've got a weird way of calculating these things, but I mean, I'm normally pretty close. It's about 20% real rate of inflation, CPI is normally, if you multiply CPI by 2.5, that's about what real inflation um, is. I was talking to somebody yesterday in the, in the restaurant business that said, I'm trying to think of what it was. It might have been mayonnaise. I mean, mayonnaise was like, you know, a container of mayonnaise was $3.70. That same container today is $8.49. Um, I wouldn't buy mayonnaise. I wouldn't buy it at a dollar. Yeah, talking, to, talking about a wholesale hamburger. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like hamburger right. meat buying from, you know, one of the uh, big food providers was, I mean, it's up like 125% or something stupid like that. Um, I just know that about a month or two ago, I went to a grocery store. And I don't go to the grocery store much. Uh, you know, we did a lot when our kids were home, but our kids are gone now, so we don't go to the grocery store a lot. Um, but I went, and it's like I expected the, you know, you sit there and watch the tally, and I'm not paying any attention to it, but I expected it to be 60 bucks. You know, just from previous experience, I expected $60, um, $94. Like, damn. I mean, that's <laughs> 60, 60, turns right. in, 60 turns into 94. I mean, that's 34 bucks. That gets to be real money. And I'm pumping gas in my truck a couple of weeks ago. And I normally filled my truck up. I got a small pickup. I normally fill it up for about 42 or $3. And I got to 50 and got mad stopped pumping. I said, I'm not pumping anymore. So at 50, I stopped and it was still like, you know, one eighth of a tank from being uh, full. I, I can't imagine somebody with a like an F-250 or a you know, a three-quarter ton Chevrolet or GMC uh, from King Buick GMC. I mean, I can't imagine, yeah. you know, what, I mean, I've got friends of mine who said it cost them 130 bucks to fill up their truck with gasoline. Uh, imagine a diesel. You're at $5 and what, 29 cent uh, per gallon? Wow. Well, at least we have a president that uh, subscribes to the buck stops here. I mean, he is out front taking the blame. He said, I'm the guy in charge. So 
I'll take the blame. This is how I roll. That's, how, that's what he did yesterday, right? I sense a level of sarcasm, Rio. Well, I think he gave um, a speech. On, I didn't see it, but it, I think he gave a speech on inflation yesterday, and I'm sure that's what he did. It's those MAGA extremists. Oh, the ultra MAGA. I mean, there you go. Yeah, There's another. It's, just, it's not Michelob anymore. It's Michelob Ultra. <laughs> so it's not just MAGA anymore. It's MAGA Ultra. So the ultra MAGA extremist. Or who does, they're to blame for all the inflation and the, the disarray. Ah. No, here's what happens when you elect somebody who's not very smart to begin with. Uh, smart enough to gain the system. I mean, he's plenty smart to understand how to create enormous wealth from uh, public service. You know, th- there's kind of a, um, and this goes, what, incompetence or is it intentional? Um, it's, it's hard to call Biden incompetent dunce. When he takes one hundred and sixty thousand, I think his salary when he got to Washington was fifty or sixty grand. I mean, it's up to what one hundred and fifty or sixty grand a year now. But it's hard to call someone an incompetent dunce when they figured out a way to take a hundred and some odd thousand dollar a year job and create a worth of eleven or twelve or thirteen million dollars. I, I read. In fact, bought a house that one of the Duponts owned <laughs> in Delaware. That his first year out of office after he wasn't vice president anymore, he made eleven million dollars, is what I read, without a job. But he's such an advisor. Oh. I mean, I mean, if you had an issue, if you were a big corporation and you were trying to understand, you know, what lies ahead and what complications need to be addressed, <laughs> I mean, surely Biden would be the guy that you would read out to. Oh, yeah. I got Musk and I got Teal and I got Biden. Give me Biden. I mean, I don't care what Peter Teal has to say or Elon Musk or, or Bill Gates for that matter. You know, it's kind of interesting in America. If a man creates, designs, invents a, a pretty average software system and, and he has enough money and contributes enough and, and goes to enough seminars and sessions and Davos and all these other places, he's an infectious disease expert. So software designer plus multiple billions of dollars in wealth and donations ends to or leads to you becoming an infectious disease expert. And by the way, he announced this morning he's got COVID. Bill Gates? Mm-hmm. Goody. No, nah, I'm sorry. He, I hope I hope the man is just fine. I hope everything works out. He said perfectly uh, mild for you. symptoms. I think is what he said. Okay, fair enough. Um, we're praying for you, whether you believe in God or not, Bill Gates, uh, for a speedy recovery. Let's go to the phone. Here is Cocky Mike. Hey, Mike. Good morning, guys. Um, I missed yesterday's show, but it sounds to me like you um, you watched 2000 Mule last night. I did late yesterday That's afternoon. Good. I did. Okay. All right. Monday when I called and we talked about the various subjects, there was. I didn't tell you about the things that I did not like about it because you, you were, I mean, it was really just about this is an eye opener, but there's some things about it that I, you know, that to me still, they, they just kind of drop the ball on it or they have a part two that they will spring on us later because I want to know why they didn't take all those millions of minutes of footage and all this cell phone data and put together a montage of one person going boom, 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 drop box to drop box to drop box, you know, and that kind of disappointed me. Um, I listened to, out of the blue, listened to Ben Shapiro's podcast yesterday, and he hit on a bunch of these subjects too, which I was saying, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of the way I feel. Um, that they, There's got to be a part two. I mean, you we, you can't you're not trying to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt because we're not in court, but you need to you need to give enough evidence to to at least warrant an investigation. 
what did you see in the movie that you said, well, they should have done this and should have done that? Well, there was a lot. I mean, there was a lot left to be, you know, decided. To me, Mike, the meat of the film was the interview with Catherine, uh, what is it, Eagle Brecht or Engel Brecht and and Greg Phillips of True the Vote. When they sat at that table and they, they showed the video and they went through some of the calculations, that was the meat of the to me, the meat of the film was when the, when Dinesh D'Souza and I think maybe his wife uh, sat down with those two people, man and woman, from True the Vote, and they kind of walked yeah. you through um, the mule, you know, the, they call them devices to begin with, and how they right. made trips from these not-for-profits to these state-run ballot boxes and drop boxes, um, but, but it didn't prove anything. I mean, I, it, it, right. it, it, well, I'll tell you what it did to me, and I told Dave during the, uh, during the last break, that, you know, I've always been suspicious of what happened. It, it added a layer of evidence that could potentially lead to an investigation. But, but I do think there has to be more evidence laid out for someone to be convicted of breaking a law. I mean, it's a felony to, right. uh, you know, interfere right. with the, uh, the, the goings on of a federal election. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it didn't prove a single thing. But but the meat of the film to me was when we found out that True the Vote bought and analyzed all this cell phone tracking data from these wow. um, from these swing states as collected by advertisers. I mean, it's not new technology. Geo tracking no, and geofencing is is proven technology, and um, and they keep up with us whether we like it or not. They keep up with us via our cell phones or computers. That was the revelation. Uh, in other words. I've got a I've got a strong held suspicion about something that makes sense in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona. They went maybe two steps down the road of validating my suspicion, but we've still got to get deeper. We've got to get we got to know more. We've got to we got to get names and addresses and and license plate numbers and times of the day and yeah, and yeah. and clarify. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, when you show a an SUV pull up at a drop box at one o'clock in the morning, how do we know that's not somebody? That, that, that works during the day uh, or works during the night and on their way to work dropped yeah. off there, their mom and dad and brother's uh, ballot. I mean, we don't know that. We've got we to gotta really go further down that road of um, uh, basically validating our suspicions that something just doesn't make any sense. I think it went, I think it went a ways toward that, but it went nowhere near far enough. Yeah, I agree with that. And see, when you, when you combine that, look, here's what – Here's what really, really should be done. They catch drug kingpins by busting the guy selling a $5 bag on the corner. And then they step their way up the chain of command and say, well, we'll give you a deal, but you you need to roll over on the next guy, and you're going to become a confidential informant. See, that's the way they should be doing this. The guy who was making $10 to drop them, you know, if, if all this is true and all this is accurate, the guy who's being paid ten dollars to stuff that in there, take a picture of it. We need to bust him and then say, okay, who were you answering to? And then who were you answering to? Because these are felonies. This is this is a lifetime. Exactly. You know, exactly. Being, being a felon. I mean, if somebody um, if somebody paid you ten dollars a ballot, here's what needs to happen, Mike. Somebody needs to. Well, we've got the video of the uh, surveillance video of the of the vehicle. We've got a license right. plate number. I mean, there, there's a place in the video they say, this is Georgia, but this person from South Carolina. I mean, this person right. pro- probably came to work, you know, as a mule. Yep. Uh, but, but I'm speculating. I can't prove that. So let's get the license plate number. 
Let's interview the, the I don't want to call him a suspect. Let's interview the person who um, who voted at two o'clock in the morning and let's try to break them. I mean, let's try to threaten them with a felony, you know. Um, that's that's who, right. And, 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 and when they say, and when they say that was my grandmother, say, okay, what's your grandmother's name? And let's go and see grandma. Grandpa, okay, let's, let's go. We're going to go interview grandma and we're going to go interview grandpa. And then you keep giving us names of people that you say those 27 ballots were for. And uh, because they have to be close relatives in Georgia, they can't be just anybody. Correct. And uh, and he'll run out of names. So, but anyway, I and, and Mike, and Mike, at, at some point in time, you say, "Look, you're in trouble. You, you, mm-hmm. you, if you help us, I mean, how many times have we heard this? If you help us, yeah. we we can minimize your exposure. Um, you got paid, you know, five thousand dollars to to transport fifty illegitimate ballots or five hundred illegitimate ballots. Uh, who paid you that money? I mean, if you want to and really minimize your exposure, just, who paid you that money? And we're also going to bust you on income tax evasion. There you go. You can't make more than $600 from one person. So those nonprofits need to be scrutinized big time. And I'm disappointed they didn't say, here's the, the list of the nonprofits, since they're a nonprofit, and they didn't do nothing wrong. Here's a list of who they are that we've been looking at. And they didn't do that either. No, and but maybe, what do we, maybe that'll come. And, and thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. What do we've got to do? And Mike's exactly right. What have we got to do? We we can't call it an NGO and an ident- uh, device. I mean, it can't be Mule A and NGO B. It's got to be um, the... Uh, the make sure all the votes are counted uh, charity or, you know, charitable organization in Georgia and John Smith. I mean, John Smith was driving a Ford Bronco and at 245 in the morning, uh, John Smith drove to a drop box in Gwinnett County and voted or dropped 27 ballots into the ballot box. Um, John Smith left, you know, the NGO, the charitable organization at 254 and then he, he left there and went to another. I mean, we've got to put it's got to be personalized. It's got to be very real. Right now, it's kind of abstract. You know, th- there's this charitable organization in Gwinnett County that, that had these ballots, and these ballots were run out in the street or delivered to the drop boxes by the mules. That's very generic. We've got to personalize that. We, we've got to have a face. Uh, the news, I don't know who will report this other than Fox News, but somebody's got to have a camera outside of a charitable organization that is suspected of being involved in this. We got to have a building with a name, with a sign, and an address, and we've got to have six or eight suspects, and and get those suspects to break. We're doing exactly what I don't like the government to do, but they've done it on um, on behalf of January six. I mean, they broke these people on January six. Why not do it in the name of voting integrity? The the one thing, and Rev and I've talked a lot about this this morning during the breaks. The one thing we can't do is be consumed by this. I mean, we can't be consumed to the point we're not paying attention about inflation and, you know, the extreme position on abortion that the Democrats have. But, yes, I mean, it, you know, I've always, the best way I can articulate my perspective, I've always been suspicious about the the events of uh, presidential election 2020. I mean, something just doesn't add up to me. Uh, more African-Americans vote for Biden than ever voted for Obama. 91 no, uh, senior homes in Wisconsin have a 95% or better um, turnout rate. Um, J- Donald Trump gets 75 million votes and loses by 6 million votes. I mean, something doesn't add up there. I mean, I could go on and on and on if I had my, my working sheet here about statistical anomalies in in Philadelphia, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in, in Georgia, in Arizona. Um, but once again, my, my resolve was not as stern as yours, Rev, 
because I'm kind of the mayor of Realville. And once the, the court said we're not going to investigate, and once, and I think the, the, you know, excuse me, the Trump administration did a lousy job in, you know, proposing any sort of evidence. Uh, it would be very interesting because Mike, Mike said something a second ago without saying it. You can't do this in an hour and a half. I mean, this is a, this is a two week long, um, uh, subcommittee meeting with Congress. And some of this is done behind closed doors. I mean, this is law enforcement in coordination with members of the Judiciary Committee and the Senate or the, or the House. Um, and you got to put people on the spot. So some of these people who run the, the charitable organizations that they refer to as NGOs, uh, you got to put their hand, you know, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. I'm an under oath with threat of perjury. And, and I think we can get, but, but right now, my suspicions have been validated. But nothing, and I mean nothing, has been proven. Let's go to the phone. Here is Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So I just don't really expect the the FBI, which benefits from Joe Biden being president, that benefits from the Democrats, um, who have completely infiltrated the FBI um, and created a, a mockery of once, which was once a uh, reputable agency, um, I don't expect the FBI to investigate this with any um, real effort. Um, so my question overall, Ken, would be at what point do us America firsters say enough is enough? Because they're going to continue and they're going to work harder and harder every single time to, to do these exact same things um, to steal elections. And we can talk, you know, we can talk about these other issues, but if they continuously stealing them, then we can't affect change on those other issues. Um, so when is enough is enough? What do we do when enough is enough? And um, I guess going in, in that realm. Well, let me ask you this, Jim. Don't, don't go. Don't, don't. Are you still there? I'm here. Okay. Let, let me ask you a simple question. Is enough is enough an option? Do, do we as America firsters, is that even an option on the table? I mean, you're happy J.D. Vance is going to win in Ohio. I'm happy J.D. Vance is going to win in Ohio. Um, that's a step in the right direction. You would agree with that, right? I mean, that's a step toward a, a better right. government with more America firsters. But we're a long way from J.D. Vance. I mean, there's a tremendous space between J.D. Vance getting elected in Ohio and, and enough is enough. You see where I'm headed? I mean, is enough is enough even an option? I mean, you and I would get together and have a beer. And we would argue enough is enough, man. I've had enough of this mess. I've had enough of that mess. I mean, we need to radically change this and radically change that. But is that something that we should even consider an option or a viable option? Well, I mean, enough has to be enough at some point um, when it comes to the elections, because if they're continuously stealing them, you know, if, if you take away somebody's ability to peacefully revolt, which is what elections are, and why we have succeeded as long as we have under one system of government. Um, but once you take that ability away, then, then the government begins to fail. Um, so I, I'm just curious what, you know, what, what would be the straw that broke the camel's back? I'll tell you, there's, you know, the, the, the YouTubers, the conservative YouTubers, the left to center YouTubers try to argue that this abortion issue is going to be a straw that breaks the camel's back. I'll be honest with you. I don't think it is. I think baby formula is. So I, I, there's going to be something that breaks the, some straw that breaks the camel's back here. And it may be different things for different folks, 
Um, but something's brewing, and, and it, it has to change because if I can't feed my children, then what else matters? Nothing else matters. Yeah. Well, but thank you, Jim. Appreciate in the realm of government, and and Jim's talking about having a kid and, and can't find baby formula. You better damn well believe that's serious. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you begin to stop thinking about abortion as much, and you stop thinking about inflation as much when supply chains break down and baby formula is in scarce supply. Um, yeah, that becomes very real in your world. But but I want to go to something we're talking about in the realm of government. So so to me, and this is why two thousand mules is important, and this is why this issue is paramount. Um, for voting to be legitimate, I mean, if voting is to be legitimate and for a democracy to sustain itself or a representative republic, uh, voting by nature, by its very nature, is what, Rev? It's a, would you say it's a product of independent will and choice? I mean, I independently go to the ballot, ballot box. I make a choice based on my own sure. free will and determinations. Um, that has to be legitimate. I have to believe that when I go to the ballot box and I cast that ballot, it is a legitimate ballot that has been thought out in my best interest. Uh, in other words, I did it the best way I know how to do it. It's independent of outside forces. Now, you believe that advertising and, you know, political bent. I mean, all this goes into the equation. But for, for, for voting to be legitimate, it has to be a, a product of independence. Um, I'm not, if I vote for who I want to vote for and my vote gets canceled by some mule hauling a ballot, to a to a um, from an NGO to a ballot box in in Pennsylvania or Gwinnett County, Georgia, um, it's not legitimate. So, so I do think this is a uh, an issue of paramount significance. Um, and I played politics with it. You know, I'm as political as anybody. When I said we we got to stop looking back and move on, what what I'm what I'm basically suggesting for you to do is stop worrying about illegitimate elections. We can't do that. You can't right. stop thinking about illegitimate elections. If the elections are illegitimate, we cease to be a democracy or a representative republic. Um, If Rev's vote is based on his own free will and independence and somebody else basically cancels that vote out at 3 o'clock in the morning in Gwinnett County, illegally, we've lost a large part of who we are. So, So we should all strive for freer and fairer and more legitimate and accurate elections. Um, I would ban mail-in ballots. Would that disenfranchise a few people? Yeah, but it would make for a more legitimate electing of whomever we decide to send. A, I mean, I'm talking about Buddy Brand and William Schofield. I'm talking about, you know, Philip Lowe and Jay Jordan and Mike Rickenbach. I'm certainly talking about the federal, you know, the presidency. But I, I just think that I'm, I'm, I'm being very political with the issue. And I've, I've been very political because I think in our political from, best interest. From a political strategy, I think is how you were approaching well, that, that's it. that's kind of the if way. If you're wanting to, you know, move forward in a way to get more of you know your people elected then you you, you didn't think that that was a winning strategy you've right? accused me whether critical or or, or you know or kind of in a positive fact you've accused me of looking at everything on this show through the ends through the lens of a politician yep. I, I guess i do to some degree i mean it's a political radio show i'm a former politician um i tend to look at about everything that way so, but but here's where i'm conflicted and i'm i'll easily admit there is nothing about 2022 more important than whether or not we had a free and fair election in 2020. I mean, if we didn't have a free and fair election in 2020, why do we expect to have one in 2022? I mean, why do we See, not that's believe? That's a different approach from you. Is that no, because you, that, it is? That, have you said that before? Of, let me tell you, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. Okay. But the rest of the story is we, we've got to win. 
we've got to win. And I don't think you win by harping on the the illegitimacy of the 2020 election because most people are watching Seinfeld and those people who are watching Seinfeld have been told by the mainstream media that Trump presented no evidence. The court shot him down. There is no evidence at all of impropriety or irregularity or illegitimacy in the election, and that's just sour grapes. You know how Trump is. He likes to win, and when he doesn't get his way and win, he pouts and cries and blames a lot of other people. To some degree, that there's some truth there. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you find a lot of things that, that deserve to be investigated, that should be investigated, but don't need to be the pillars of the election coming up. So, so I think you've got separate issues here. I think you've got the 2020 presidential election as a standalone issue. And, and, and the more we incorporate that in, well, let me, let me ask you this. Do you, would you rather President Biden and Democrats running in 2022 explain the 2020 election or the inflation of right now? I think the inflation is sure. The, it's um, the pocketbook uh, issue you know, everybody's yeah, facing. I mean, the, the baby formula the of right prices, now. Yeah, sure. The, the gas chains, prices, uh, the, all of the, that. The mess we've got right now. The you know we're living in the muck of Democrat policies right now. And I'm not blaming all the Democrats. And I think Larry was exactly right. Some of the inflation lays at the feet of Republicans who voted to you know spend 2.2 trillion, 1.9 trillion. I'm talking about the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan. Are we that behind on a break? Yep. I'm sorry. Yeah, we are. Wow. <laughs> We got going. Yeah. Back in a minute. As the abortion issue. I don't know if you saw this or not, but the woman's the Women's Health Protection Act is going to be voted on probably today or tomorrow. Um, it's kind of interesting that um, the Republican from Maine, Senator Collins, has a problem with some of the language. She doesn't have a problem with abortion. She's a Republican senator from Maine, has very little problem with abortion. She's got some concern about a couple of things within the bill, and that is... Um, the Catholic Church being forced to provide abortion coverage, uh, kind of the Hobby Lobby story. Remember mm-hmm. the court decision with Hobby Lobby? And there's the um, the guarantee that WHPA, I'm talking like a politician now, the Women's Health Protection Act would allow sex-selective abortions. So that's too far for Is college. Is this the Schumer bill? It's the Schumer bill. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a House bill, but Schumer's kind of dressed it up a little bit in the Senate. And it basically, I mean, I'll, I'll go down this road tomorrow at great length, but it really does um, create a federal right to abortion through all the months of pregnancy. I mean, in essence, I mean, it, it gets a lot complicated, a lot more complicated than that. It, it's what they call post-viability health exceptions, um, and then they include uh, mental and emotional health. Uh, it would strike down all the state laws on abortion, Um it would basically create a federal right for a woman to have abortion from the time she finds out she's pregnant till the day before she delivers that baby. But the language is post-viability health exceptions that would include mental and emotional um, issues. Wow. And, um, but give Collins credit. She'll stop at sex selective. I mean, she'll basically say, and what they're arguing is if a woman's pregnant and they find out they're having a boy but they wanted a girl, they can abort the, you know, the girl and wait on having a boy or vice versa for that matter. That's just, that's scary guys. I mean, that, that, I mean, if we've gotten to a point Disgusting. where our political leaders, you know, actually believe that deserves debate. I mean, that's all I need to know. It doesn't matter where we end up. I mean, there are people in Washington that believe it's legitimate to debate sex selective abortion. 
And to kill a baby boy because you wanted a baby girl or kill a baby girl because you wanted a baby boy, here I am with Breeze, but that is as godless as it gets. <laughs> that speaks for itself. I don't know that I need to add anything to that. Spoken like someone who's been in farming uh, most of their life. I think what they're insinuating is row crop farmers, and I'm talking about beans and corn and wheat and cotton, uh, tobacco, I guess, to some degree. Uh, we're, we're down 27% in usage of fertilizer year to year. You don't print food. We've been real good at printing money. Now, we don't print ham or bacon or burgers or, you know, steak or, and, and I mean, I'm just saying, I, I don't understand the nuances of farming. I mean, I grew up around farming and I know enough to be dangerous, but, but if fertilizer usage is down 27% year to year, it would stand to reason that food production is going to be uh, down accordingly. I don't know if 27% fertilizer decreased at least 27% food decrease but you got to believe one bad option leads to another or one bad scenario in reality leads uh, to another and uh, once again when we run out of money in, in washington we just print more if we run out of food in america i don't know what you do i mean i don't think we've ever ever and i want to give glenn beck a lot of credit because there was a day i would chuckle under my breath when i would hear beck say you know this government one day is going to lead to this craziness of government is going to lead to a place where we don't have enough food. And for $49.99, you can buy a month's worth of food, and here's who you call and tell them I sent you. And use the bet code, and you get a 10% discount. I remember thinking, how in the hell is he on the radio? I mean, that's the nuttiest, craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. Huh? Maybe, maybe not. But we're going to have, I mean, we're already having a pretty significant food shortage, and it's going to get worse. And I'm telling you guys, um, I stick to my guns. The COVID response uh, of the elites of Washington was an epic failure. It is, it is one of the most unbelievable travesties that a government has ever committed against a people. And, and we allowed it. I mean, COVID didn't do this. The government's actions and reactions and policies and edicts in relation to COVID is what led to this absolute, this absolute mess we have on our hands today. Let me ask you this. What changes by Jill Biden going to Ukraine? I mean, in, in all honesty, I mean, think about it. There, there's a photo op, and maybe she wanted to travel. I mean, maybe the plane needed to put some miles. I don't, I don't know why she decided to do this. Uh, the president didn't go, but the first lady did. But, but in essence, I mean, what, what value? I mean, help me understand this. I want to be fair-minded. What value did her going to Ukraine on Mother's Day give uh, the, the, the situation at hand? I mean, I can't think of anything. No, I can't. I mean, I understand, no you know, every now and then a president goes and rallies the troops and there's a photo op and there's uh, kind of, kind of a, I don't know, some energy that, that is generated there. You know, the president, I'm care for you. And I sent you over here, so I got to come see you and care for you. You know, I'm not sure you ought to be over here, but you know how we are in Washington with but these executive so wars. She went into a war zone in a, another country that we are, you know, supposedly not involved in this conflict, right? Or did she? Well, I think Charles that, asked this morning, or did she? Right. Um, but but I want to get back to the point. You know, I'd like to believe that our diplomats and assets are, are, you know, deployed in places where they add value. Someone help me understand the value that was created. Did anything change about anything because Jill Biden went to Ukraine um, on Mother's Day? I mean, I, it's just, once again, I can question the value. 
whether whether right. Biden needs but, but, but to be what there. What was the whether, stated goal? Can somebody yeah, in government tell us the stated goal? Whether an envoy needs to go. And I question, you know, I've been to Israel six times. Well, you're traveling too much. I mean, the pay, taxpayers paying too much of your of your travel. I hear these these senators in particular. I went to Israel four times. I've been to Iraq five times. For what? I mean, do you think they give a rat's ass what a U.S. senator says in Baghdad or in Kiev or in Moscow? No, they could care less. But I understand uh, the, the abstract value, the intangible value. We can debate what it is, and I can debate you're wasting your time, wasting our money, and putting yourself at risk. It's not, there's, there's not enough bang for the buck. But for Jill Biden to go to Kiev on Mother's Day adds zero value. There's nothing to see here except the vice president, excuse me, the president's wife. Uh, well, I'm talking like Obama now. The, the, the president's wife went to, um, the first lady of America went, I don't know, it's just maybe, maybe photo ops matter that much to some, but certainly not to me. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone held on during uh, some of the way, some of the uh, minor lines, and uh, let's go there. Jamie, thanks for holding on, man. Uh, my pleasure. Um, listen, guys, I made a delivery. Um, yesterday to mount pleasant and uh, it was a wood delivery as a matter of fact to cocky mike um due to one of y'all's commercials thank you uh it cost me 70 bucks to drive down to mount pleasant and back and uh, usually it's around 30 bucks and of course i had to pass that on but that's not the reason i called you uh, ken earlier you made a point um about hiring new fresh people to go uh, to serve for us and I agree with you, and that's that's why I'm, I, if I were in PD, I'd be back in Barbara Arthur. I think she's fresh. I think she's got a lot of energy, and I think she's the American firster. I I, I believe Trump picked the wrong uh, candidate, and also I know he picked the wrong candidate in Pennsylvania. Um, I've been watching that race, and and um, the woman running up there is strong as nails, and I wish he'd have backed her. Thank but, you. Uh, you finished, Jam? Well, just one more thing. Yes, sir. I, I, I you know, uh, this is, uh, I, I got to just tell all the small business people out there, buy time on this station and, and this program because you will you will get your money back threefold. I mean, what I when I advertised on, on with y'all, Ken, it, it, it has been amazing the return I got on it. Sorry, I mean, that's shameful, but um, I had to say it. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate that. You got anything else? We can, well, yeah, we got another I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the floor is yours, my man. <laughs> there you go. Continue, continue, continue. I'll, I'll drink a cup of coffee. Now, thank you, Jam. Appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. And, um, and look, guys, I mean, if we can't help you sell your product and help you, you know, improve your brand, then we're not doing our job here. I think we've garnered an audience. I mean, Rev knows that he's far better at, you know, <laughs> digging through the data to find out. He'll say this 10.5 or this 13.7. I'm like, I don't know, man. How do we do with Limbaugh? I mean, that was always what I wanted. How do, how do we do with Limbaugh? But, I mean, there's no doubt we have uh, positioned ourselves in the marketplace to be advantageous for people who have businesses. And but those kind of stories that Jamie just told, those are the ones that count. But, but mean, it's, it's kind of like what Mike was saying a second ago about the uh, the mules and the devices and the, you know, the innuendos. And, I mean, when you personalize it, it just carries the day so much more clearly. Um, Instead, you know, there was this business guy who said he this radio show helped him sell this product. Uh, but it's different when Jam says, you know, your radio show helped me sell this product. 
to this person. And I don't believe it would have worked had I not advertised on this radio show. So we are certainly uh, proud of that. Uh, We are very uh, respectful of that. We don't take it for granted. And I mean that sincerely. As much joking around as we do and as much fun as we have over the airways, as, um, as colorful as we get at times, we still understand that we're in the business of communication. We're in the broadcasting business. This is gainful employment. And the only way we stay gainfully employed is to um, allow a product to be serviceable to our sales staff when they go out and inquire about you advertising on the radio or not. So thank you. And I mean that sincerely sincerely to Jam and to all the others that help us do what we do. I got a call? Uh, Yeah, I got 30 seconds here. Uh, Angry Bob has something to say. Bob? Yeah, and I'm not going to talk about the 2020 election. Just a procedural question for Ken. What happens to um, William Schofield's city council seat should he win uh, the uh, uh, the county council? And I'll drop off so you can give me the answer. Thank, Thank you. you, Bob. He is not filed to run for that seat. That seat is up. So there are candidates in the Democrat primary. Uh, there may be a Republican filed, but um, yeah, he'll just vacate that seat. In other words, if he doesn't win the county council seat, he's out of politics in January of uh, next year. But there is a contest as we speak in the Democrat primary for the city council office that Schofield holds right now. Back in a minute. 